We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Get a floor that's 100% waterproof for life without sacrificing the style you want. The Home Depot has Pergo Outlast Plus laminate starting at just $279 a square foot. With 22 designer colors, Pergo Outlast Plus can fit any style in any room beautifully. And you can rest easy because it's waterproof. Get Pergo Outlast Plus starting at just $279 a square foot at the number one Pergo waterproof laminate flooring retailer. The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only. See warranty for details. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Another weekend of Gator football, another disappointment. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. Alan's in Moscow. I'm in Gainesville. The frustration, I think, is worldwide, Alan. How are you feeling? Ooh, that was rough. Second week in a row. I don't know. Those, these last two weeks have almost been a mirror of themselves, and it, neither was very fun. Let me ask you this. Was this like a stomach punch slash kick in the nuts to you? Or did you expect it so much that you didn't even really feel it? I didn't really even feel it. And I probably shouldn't admit this live on my own podcast, but I actually bet on Texas A&M to win this game. And before you go with your pitchforks to assault me, I figured, you know, if I'm going to pick against us to win and I'm going to spend all of my time watching film of the opponents that we play as well as our own team, I should at least bet on what I expect to happen, right? Uh, in no way, shape, or form was I rooting for Texas A&M. I'm not betting a significant amount of money. It's more of just like an emotional hedge, I believe, as the professional gamblers call it. You are emotionally hedging against the result <laughs> that you don't want to happen. 
but I didn't really even feel it. And, you know, maybe if I didn't do the podcast, I'd feel it more. But when you watch all the tape, you hear Alan and I each week kind of get on here and you especially hear me say, look, we're not very good. The film says we're not very good. Uh, I felt like AM was getting better and I'm just over it. I'm numb. I mean, I said Max Mac was on the four and a half on the hot seat last week and I'm kind of over him then and he violates the three-year rule and I'm just over it. So I didn't really feel it. It, it was it was almost something where strategically I began to say to myself, Alan, losing this game probably does better for the future of the program than winning it. Why not just have the wheels fall off and clean house? And and we're going to talk more about that strategy later on in the podcast, but maybe that's where I am. Not maybe, definitely that's where I am. And so I think at this point in time, I've got my own pitchfork out and I'm rooting for Anarchy. So I didn't feel it. And if anything, it seemed to support my meta narrative that there's there's a, a change needed in Gainesville. And if this loss helps me get to that change faster, then I'll take my medicine now. Yeah, I was really mourning the loss, I think, of a successful season. And we're going to talk a little bit later about can this season be salvaged? But winning these last two games, I just bring some excitement and heading into a bye week against a, you know, uh, probably significantly better Georgia team. Still, you can dream about what's out there, maybe the improvements that might be made. But you're right. It would just be masking, masking some fatal flaws in the infrastructure of this team, specifically on offense. And that might be worse for us in the long run. But I hated it. It sucked watching it. And especially coming off that LSU loss, it was, I think, doubly painful um, being so far away. Uh, I, I don't think it blunted any of it for me. In fact, I think it made it a little worse. So for whatever that's worth, whatever that's worth, it sucked watching it in Moscow, too. Yeah, and it just it sucks watching it, period. But there's like a numbness to it. It's been eight years. It's sort of like this is who we are and we're not changing before I ask you this next question, which was a question that was talked about all over the Twitter sphere and really Twitter sphere and really the college football landscape on Saturday, I want to set up the show for you guys. So we have what I think today is going to be a really great show. We're going to cover a lot of the topics that I'm sure you're thinking about. Whose fault is this? What should we do now? What are Alan and I thinking about? And we're also going to visit with Kiwan Ratliff, who is going to give us his very candid thoughts on all the same questions that. Uh, you want to know. We're not going to hold back. We're going to ask him all the important ones. We're going to get his opinions. We're going to see what he thinks. So it should be just a stacked show today during this bi-week episode. Looking forward to it. And before we get into the film study, Alan, I got to ask you about the uniforms. Much talked about topic, the swamp green. Nike spent two years designing them. You saw them on television from afar. What did you think? When they first announced it on you know, social media last week, I hated them. I thought they looked terrible this ghastly like green gray i didn't hate the scales but someone else put on twitter you know in an all green all excuse me all blue or all orange and it looked pretty sweet i was like that would have been fun now watching them live i gotta admit it grew on me a little bit i didn't hate them nearly as much and if it's something that's provocative for recruits and players i don't want to get too up in arms about it but we have great uniforms and I don't want to see us go in the way of Oregon where we're, you know, changing out our uniforms every week. But we have the money and the, you know, access to this kind of stuff. So it's fine. I didn't want to get too crazy on it. But overall, I have to say I did not like it. What about you? Yeah, I like style. I like all things style. And I understand what they were going for with the swamp green. 
and the gators and the literal interpretation of those things. And, and I understand there's a, there's a, a defense for that, but as far as looks, ugh, they were, they were just ugly. It was hard to see the numbers, which was somewhat frustrating. I think even just as a, as an astute fan trying to see who's out there, especially when we're changing personnel groupings, I like the helmet. I've always liked black helmets. I wish you would have done black helmets with a different kind of uniform. And I think what you said, Alan, is the key for me. A slight twist on these unis, and I probably really would have liked them. I think had they done the gator skin and made them orange or made them blue or made them our colors and popped that way and gone with a black helmet or, or anything of that chrome helmet. Who knows? You could do a million different things. But I think I could have liked them. So I think I could have liked them. But the swamp green, which was like an olivey sort of green in person, was a weird thing. It didn't necessarily felt like you were watching your own team play. It was almost like you were watching two other teams play in the home, in the home crowd, in the home atmosphere. But uh, you know, I think the uniforms got a little boost from the F twenty two Raptor flyover. It had been many years since we've had a flyover, so the crowd was sort of buzzing pregame, and maybe we were all you know forgetting just how bad the unis were. But all in all, not a fan. The general consensus, of course, of the style world is is it was a definite fail. But uh, I think Nike does this stuff because it gets a lot of attention. And there is a certain there's a certain truth behind creating a really ugly uniform on purpose because it gets talked about more than a good looking one. And I think that's true. I mean, it was one of the most trending topics in college football on Saturday. So I'm sure Nike's happy with that because really that's all they care about is people knowing that Nike makes Florida's uniforms and, and Nike wins again in the branding war. But not a fan. I hope we don't wear those ever again. Uh, I'm cool with that. All right, let's get to the game itself. A loss to the Texas A&M Aggies. As we went back through and looked at the game, I want to bring you what we saw. And we're going to start on the defense, a group that excelled for the most part. James, walk us through, how did we defend them for the most part? Well, this is a brilliant game plan by Randy Shannon. And you heard me talk last week about how I think Randy Shannon is doing a great job, despite what some of the numbers might say, especially with an inexperienced roster. And he came out with an extremely aggressive strategy right from play one. We primarily ran nickel. So two linebackers instead of three. Our normal base defense is a 4-3. Uh, we brought our extra safety or our strong safety uh, into the box on almost every single play. And we played man press cover one. So we had one high safety we were playing man on the corners, man with our nickel, and then we were also bringing that safety as an extra run defender. Uh, and then we occasionally ran a cover two look and obvious passing downs, third and longs, things like that. But the nickel cover one with the, the safety coming downhill was a fantastic game plan, one that someone said after the game stifled Texas A&M. And uh, really, really, I thought great schematic work from Randy Shannon coming into this game. Love the aggressiveness. Love the plan. Really sound football, I thought, coming from from that game plan. Yeah, it was excellent to watch, especially in the first half. If you look at the numbers on this game for A&M, it's hard to fathom how we lost it. You know, I think they had 83 yards rushing in the game or something like that. I think they only completed like eight passes. And especially in the first half, and really throughout the whole game, we – limited their running backs. Their running backs looked pedestrian, and I don't think that's because they're not good. I actually like their running backs a lot, but they had no room to go anywhere. Our defensive tackles did a great job. Our ends came down, um, held the edge. Our linebackers fit their gaps. They played the run exceptionally well, especially when it came to the the running backs, the straight running plays, and 
you know, they weren't fooled by some of the misdirection for the most part. So excellent job by them. I, I agree that Randy Shannon put us in a position to do really well. Now, AM did score, and especially and we were especially hurt by some quarterback runs, which we talked about last week as being the thing that we needed to defend. And we did in the first half. We didn't do it as well in the second half. How, why did the QB runs work in the second half? Yeah, let's let's unpack this piece by piece. So first, there were four primary passing plays, really in an entire football game where AM ran like 65 plays. There were four passing plays that actually worked for AM. Uh, and the first question you have to ask yourself is, well, why did those particular passing plays work? Uh, why was why was a drag route wide open? And almost all of them tended to be a drag route minus one. And the answer to that question really comes down to freshmen and or inexperienced players making some mistakes. And I'll walk you through each one. So the first the first drag that works uh, in the first half is is Jawani Taylor. Jawan Taylor getting a lot of playing time last night, number twenty nine at safety in the absence of of Washington. And essentially, yes, not the offensive lineman, not the offensive the, lineman, Jawani, but Jawan Taylor. Sorry, it's very confusing even for me. But he blows a zone man combo coverage. So there's Voshan Johnson, uh, Voshan, sorry, uh, linebacker, and then there's Jawan Taylor at safety. And they're supposed to be playing a zone, and Texas A&M runs two drag routes crossing each other, and Voshan passes it off correctly, and Taylor does not. And so it's a busted coverage. It results in like a 20-yard gain for A&M. This goes to a bigger narrative, which you've heard us talk about on this very podcast. Randy Shannon has been very vanilla this year on defense, and one of the reasons why, as we noted last week, is when we do anything that's a little bit next level, a combo man zone coverage, uh, any sort of blitz package, we struggle to get the communication correct. Now, I don't attribute this to coaches when you have so much inexperience out there. This is just part of what happens when you're playing a guy who's only played 15, 20 snaps the whole year. Uh, And that's what happened on that one. The same exact thing happens involving Chauncey Gardner on the second drag. It's another zone man combo coverage. So we have half the field playing man, half the field playing zone. Chauncey plays man, runs with his guy, which leaves a wide open drag route coming to the outside of the field. Uh, Voshan on that one also got that right. So Voshan is showing, I think, a lot of growth week to week and how well he covers the pass. And it showed this week. Uh, you had some other ones, similar, similar situations where Sean Davis blows the coverage coming downhill at safety on the running back. They dropped that pass. That one worked out. And then you've got two more in the game that really culminate in all of their passes where Kirk, who we did a phenomenal job on number three for an their best receiver, just beats Jawan Taylor one-on-one against bump and run coverage, just beats him right to the, right to the corner, which is a nice play. And then lastly, Duke Dawson, a blue one in the fourth quarter, a very important play where everyone else is playing zone and he plays man out of the nickel and they get a busted coverage 35-yard play. So if you take away those plays, which are all really inexperienced execution errors with the with the exception of, of Duke Dawson, uh, they really wouldn't have had any positive passing plays. Nobody was really open. And so, you know, you're going to have some miscommunications when you have this much inexperience and that's what went on in the passing game. So I think that's step one. And step two is to then unpack why did the quarterback runs work in the second half? Well, primarily in the first half, they didn't run any quarterback runs out of the pocket. They were trying to run the zone read, which we were well, well prepared for. And in the second half, like I think a lot of people predicted, I think you were watching it, Alan, and probably expecting it to come. I know I was. They were going to try that out. Uh, They went to it. They got us on one on film that we were not ready for. Only one. All of the other runs in which Mond had, we had a spy on that particular play. Uh, give a little bit of credit to AM for some of the play design. They had a really, really nice play design package where the center would hesitate, then come out and pull block. Very well packaged up. We pretty much adjusted to it. And then the last drive, 
we had a critical era where Kylon is or Kylon Johnson is a spy on on third and long. It's third and ten, I think, and they're on our thirty. And he's a spy and he just gets caught on the wrong side of the play. We kind of almost sack Mond. Mond gets away, exits out the right side, and Kylan is too far underneath for the angle. Uh, we had the right coverage. We had everything you needed to stop that play. The receivers were covered. We got good pressure and we had Kylan spying. So I think some some people were floating around thinking, oh, we weren't ready for that. I definitely don't think that was true. Uh, they got one play early in the third quarter where they hit us with that. And after that, we were in the proper defense for really the rest of the game against those looks. Uh, they did start having some success in the fourth quarter, primarily due to momentum. I think as well as the fact that, uh, and we've talked about this before, Alan, and we'll talk about it a little later. Something happens when your offense decides to stop trying to score and the other team is sort of ratcheting up the aggressiveness. Good things tend to happen. You tend to make a few more plays. And while our defense held AM to field goals, we certainly yielded points in that fourth quarter. But I don't look at it on film and think, oh, wow, we were really in the wrong look or in the wrong scheme or, or being coached incorrectly. Primarily uh, a few plays A&M made. It's a football game. It's going to happen. And a few plays where some, some inexperience gets us. So the nutshell in that one on film as a defense, I thought did an exemplary job. We had a great game plan and I really liked uh, how we attempted to attack A&M and, and someone of course said as much after the game, uh, we really did shut down their offense. It was a very, very good defensive performance and one that was absolutely good enough to carry us to a victory coupled with the fact that I think each week on film, you're watching our defense get better, which is what we expected before the season. Even if the numbers are below, I think where a lot of Gator fans, including myself would have liked to have had them. You are watching marked improvement every single week in this league against the teams that we are playing against. And the defense to date, in my opinion, has not cost us a single game. Uh, I don't think you can hang any of our losses on our defense and, and given the turnover there, I think that's a, a job that should be commended in and of itself. Yeah, when you give up under 20 points in the last couple of games, uh, that gives you a chance to win, especially when, you know, there's some major mistakes being made on the other side. Uh, yeah, this I'm going to start a segment, things that suck. One of them is wasting another amazing performance by our defense. And not statistically, like, like they shut them down to three points. But those guys played their guts out, and I hated to see that come up short again. Really, really frustrating. Okay, let's talk about what we did well. Um, I mentioned some of our run fits in the first half. Got to mention Taven Bryan. This guy was unreal. And there's a lot of hype around him. I think sometimes in certain games he gets some hype, and he, it's maybe a little too much. And even calling him, referring to him as you know the college J.J. Watt is a little over the top. But this guy was so disruptive in this game. They could not block him. And that really freed up the rest of our defensive line to make some plays and our linebackers to make some plays. Um, love the play of the young secondary. Again, we bear, we don't even talk about Marco Wilson and Henderson. They were like not even in the game. A&M almost didn't even go after them. They did some good jobs of getting matchups of, you know, certain their players against a linebacker or a safety and doing a good job on some of those plays, like you mentioned. But great job by the youth in our secondary. Um, thought that was a tremendous game by them. Uh, what did you think we did well? Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. We knew coming into the game that the linebackers and the safeties were going to be attacked by AM. 
And that is exactly what they did. And uh, that was their whole game plan. They didn't really want to mess around attacking our corners. They weren't trying to attack the perimeter. They were trying to attack the middle of the field, whether it be zone reads, drags, whatever the case was. They were successful. That game plan did pay dividends. They stuck with it the entire game, but really at a very moderate level. Very, very impressed with the growth of this defense. I thought we held the edge extremely well. It is not easy to stop Texas A&M's running game. They came into that game averaging 230 yards a game on the ground, and we just shut them down. Alabama held them to 71. We held them to 83. And, uh, you know, a few of those at the end really were, like we said, those quarterback spy scenarios that we were ready for. And so just exemplary job holding the edge. I thought our defensive line really was able to shine in this game, and it's because it's the first team that has truly played us legitimately. And what I mean by that is they were willing to go even numbers all game with us. So we had six in the box, they had six in the box, and we were just obliterating them, which shows, I think, the talent uh, this defense has in the future. Obviously, what the defensive line does, I think how Randy Shannon wants to play, I think a lot of that was on display in this game. I thought Juwan Taylor's pick was really great. We've had non-existent safety play, period, really, on deep balls. And so he got his one opportunity, made a great pick, made a great play, rolled back nicely, got good depth. I thought that was a really, really sound play by him. Uh, I thought stopping the run with the safety in the box was really important. So Chauncey Gardner tackled well in this game, which was important. And then I think in general, the young guys, whether it was Sean Davis or whether it was Juwan Taylor at the back end there, they came in and they helped out and they were able to make those runs ineffective. And uh, I thought that was all just excellent. And then like you mentioned, the pass defense was fantastic. I mean, if we're not messing up some communications, which again, it's going to happen. It's just going to happen when you have that much inexperience out there. Uh, especially at this stage of the season. When we weren't doing that, we basically were playing perfect pass defense football. Uh, you rarely can find a guy for AM open, and they run an excellent passing scheme. So I thought that was just wonderful on film. It's really a shame that we didn't get a win out of this game, given what the defense put on tape. Uh, there are some bright spots, Alan, individually. We've highlighted a few of them. Taven Bryant had his, his come-out game, I think. We've all talked about this for a long time, and he put the production out there on tape and looked just tremendous. He looked the part. In this game, we've highlighted our corners, our defensive line as a whole. Uh, obviously, Jawan Taylor and then Chauncey's tackling. And lastly, for me, I want to name Duke Dawson. He did have one, and I think only one play you can chart in the entire game where he messed it up, and it was a very important play in the fourth quarter. But that guy played an absolutely fantastic game. He was all over the field making fantastic play after fantastic play. And uh, you know, I think when you put in a full 60 minutes of work like that and you make one mistake uh, that that's, that's certainly going to be allowable. But I thought he was really, really putting good stuff on film. Agreed. I was impressed by his play. I also want to mention a guy that gets overlooked because he's so steady and consistent as David Reese and, you know, having to basically get in there and ram his head into uh, those A&M running backs. I thought he did an excellent job. And yeah, Duke Dawson for his limitations he does such good work for us in the middle of the field, and he's so versatile, and we're definitely fortunate to have him back there. And also, I just got to say this, thinking about our defensive line, another thing that sucks is watching Jordan Chair get hurt. He's quietly become one of my favorite players. I love his effort and consistency and really the spark that he gives our defensive line. I, mean, I don't think he's as talented as some of those guys, but he gets it done, and seeing him go down with the injury was really terrible. So wanted to make sure I mentioned him and that may be the end of his Gator career. And that's a shame, but he's a guy who's played really well for the first half of the season for us. Okay. And less enjoyable football viewing. Let's talk about our offense. James, as you went back and looked at us at the film, tell us how we tried to attack them. 
Well, we really use the same game plan we've used essentially all year long, which is not going to be a surprise to any of you who watch all the Gator football games. It looks the same because it is the same. Uh, We wanted a heavy dose of a rushing attack. We wanted to attack the flats with short throws and then occasionally run some play action vertical routes, which we did try to run more of those this game than we had in the past. Uh, But really, it's more of the same when it comes to our our actual game plan. There wasn't anything new or particularly novel uh, that is a derivation from what we've seen this season thus far. Yeah, and when we have our vanilla game plan that we're rolling out there the same week after week after week, it's probably not too hard to defend us. Um, So how did they defend us? I thought I was a little bit surprised with how John Chavis, the legendary defensive coordinator, uh, actually chose to attack us. So they they employed a cover two almost the entire game, and they were willing to play even numbers against us. And I'm assuming, looking back on it now, that their goal was to limit our big plays, which is really interesting because we don't create a lot of big plays. So they seem to be content to let us run the ball, and that's really been the only way we've been able to win. And I, I would have expected a, a more of a similar game plan to what to what uh, Randy Shannon did to them is what I thought Chavis would have done to us. Instead, he didn't. They sat in the cover two. They played even numbers. They allowed us to run the ball. We obviously had 230-plus rushing yards in this game, so we were very successful with that. Uh, what they did do, of course, is what you kind of tipped there, Alan, is they played to our tendencies. And one of the reasons why you can run a, a cover two defense for most of the game is because you're very confident that you can play to our tendencies and stop us on third down, and that is what they did. Uh, there are several examples of this occurring in the game. So to give you a couple of these, uh, we had a second long run, second at 14, I believe, early in the first half. And AM comes out in a 5-2, a 5-2 defense. I chronicled the 5-2 defense last year as something Alabama used uh, to stop LSU. And essentially, you have five defensive linemen and two linebackers. It is a run-stopping defense. That's what it's there for. And it's second and 14. And AM curiously comes out matching our substitutions with a 5-2 defense. And lo and behold, we run our favorite second and long draw, which we run a lot. We've noted it on this podcast now for two and a half years. It's been a staple of our offense. I hate it. I'm sure you hate it. AM knows it. They're ready for it. So... It makes for interesting watching when you're aware of these things in the stands, and hopefully you guys are becoming more and more aware uh, as each week goes on. But essentially, they played to our tendencies. When it was third and short, third and one, third and two, they knew we were going to run the ball to the bunch formation. They were ready for it. Uh, They were ready for most of what we did. We rarely caught them in any sort of surprise situation. They were very disciplined, and they sort of limited the damage. And uh, that was their game plan coming in, and it worked out for them, even though we were able to run for a significant amount of yardage. So... Uh, just sort of further illustrating, I think, the pain we all feel, which is that John Chavis thought there was no need to even be aggressive because he could accurately sort of predict the key and important plays in the game, which he was more or less successful doing. Yeah, it was it was difficult to watch. And we did have some success uh, in this game, particularly um, when we got our running backs loose. Uh, but that was very few and far between. And this is the problem, as I've said over and over again, is when you're forced to execute um, on every critical down, you're not going to do it, especially with our inexperience at quarterback. And I'm kind of looking back on it, I think Chavis' game plan is kind of ingenious in some way, just saying, I don't think you could make every third down. Go ahead and try. And we couldn't. And this game really, you know, let – Depending on whether we made those third downs or not, and we didn't. Um, but we did score. We, there was the one amazing play, which I'm sure was 
just as amazing to watch live as it was, uh, you know, on delay in Moscow. It was Felipe Frank's rumbling, bumbling, stumbling his way all the way across the field. I'm sure that was wild to watch in the game. What else did we do well? How did we score? Well, we came out of it like we typically do in the first drive and, and move the ball well. If you've watched Gator football for a while now, Hunter McElwain, our first drive is typically our best, and they typically end in field goals because we stall out when we get sort of close enough uh, close enough to do damage. And that's what happened there with, uh, I think, a 29-yard field goal after a stalled drive. Uh, we, we did a lot more up-tempo, obviously, this game. That was something I should note in the game plan section. I did not note that in how we attacked. The plays were not different. The tempo was. I thought that helped us. In some respects, it seemed to to create a little bit more energy on the offense. Uh, we certainly had, maybe you could argue, a few more yards than we've had in the past couple of games with regards to how we were generating them. Uh, but but really, P. Ryan had an incredibly great run for a touchdown. That was an excellent, excellent run by him. Franks has that sort of ridiculous cross-the-field-twice run showing off his athleticism, and then Massey finishes. The, the sort of always-lost Dre Massey has a sighting where you hand him the ball, and the guy actually looks really athletic and quick. So it was kind of nice to see him there, and that you know that totaled up our that totaled up our 17 points, uh, which seems to be a number that we're hovering around in just about every single game this season. Yeah, and that's just not quite enough. And this offense... I think is capable of more than that, but it continues to struggle. Uh, where did you see us struggling the most? We just don't take advantage of what the defense gives us. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on that on today's podcast. If you want to hear those thoughts, you can go back and listen to basically any podcast Alan and I have done in the past, uh, this past season or previous seasons. Uh, we, we refuse to run plays that make sense against the defenses that we are given. Uh, we had, we were offered multiple multiple scenarios in that game where Texas A&M was running a cover one with man press where we could have thrown the ball deep down the sideline, could have taken a shot, could have run a variety of routes. Uh, We were also offered opportunities where there was a safety, one of their safeties guarding our slot receiver, like Brandon Powell, about 10 years off. And we took a shot once at it. I think completely like a 15 yard out. Other than that, pretty much let it go. So we refuse, we just refuse to run plays that make sense against defenses that give us a chance to have an advantage and that is is really, really frustrating. Uh, we also do really curious things on third and short. So there's a play, critical third and short, in the second half of the game where we essentially motion our two receivers on the left side of the field or the near side of the field. We motion them over to be closer to the line to help block. And the guy that we're counting on to set a key block in this play is Brandon Powell. But the reality is if we don't motion those receivers over, we actually had even numbers for the run to begin with, which is something that you generally just take. By moving Brandon Powell over, we allowed AM to bring two extra defenders into the box, and then they stop us on third and short. So there's just a whole bunch of things that don't make sense. I've hammered on it time and time and time again, and my least favorite one has to do with the number of guys in the box and us running the ball. And this did not happen often in this game because Chavis was not doing it. But in the fourth quarter, he did do it on a critical drive. We come out in first down. A&M puts nine guys in the box. The only time they did this the entire game, we run right into it for a loss of two yards. That is inexcusable play calling on the offensive side of the ball. And then really the game hinged on the third downs. We were terrible on third and shorts. We couldn't convert really most of or any of them in the second half when it seemed like it mattered. Uh, We missed blocking assignments. We, you know, we just didn't get things right. It's hard to blame the offensive line when you watch this. It's almost always a tight end that's missing it and or an unblocked linebacker, which tends to go to a protection call. The O-line, for the most part, does their job. And I've continued to say that on the podcast. That was also true with regards to AM. And then lastly, in this one, Alan, we're going to kind of break down here with a meta question in a second. 
is the execution in and of itself. So Mac talked about this after the game. It upset, I think, a lot of fans that he seemingly was saying the game plan is solid, the execution is bad. It's kind of the player's fault, I think, is what people took away from it. And our execution execution was, in fact, poor. Uh, in the second quarter, we had a first down, first and 10 on the 30-yard line where we wind up throwing that pick into the end zone. We run a play-action play. It's an aggressive call. We're sending Freddie Swain deep. Um, we actually had Siante Lewis wide open on the backside of that play. There was no way Franks could have seen him because Siante Lewis had passed off the block uh, to Morel Stevens and or an offensive lineman. It's hard to tell on film who should have blocked who, but there's a missed blocking assignment which allows their defensive lineman to come right into Franks' face. He has no chance of seeing that backside pass to the wide open Siante Lewis on that play. Just no chance of seeing it. And we instead throw a pick where he throws a jump ball to Swain. And uh, A&M was not fooled by Swain running deep. They were fooled by Siante running deep. And that's probably a touchdown. Uh, I'm not saying Frank sees that, but there's a good chance that uh, if he has time to flip his head around, that, that maybe that results in something better than it was. So the execution was definitely poor, including on the last play of the game, which was a good play call. He has DeAndre Goolsby wide open, wide open running on the seam. All he has to do is throw this ball to grass, throw him open. Instead, he tries to throw the ball right to him. It's a very nervy, nervous throw. And the linebacker picks it off. So Franks missed his fair share of throws in this game. Uh, he continued to struggle moving in the pocket. He continued to roll out of the pocket and not throw the ball away, taking losses. There are plenty of things to hang on Francis shoulders, Franks' shoulders in this game. Uh, it's the same things we've been seeing from him. And on the flip side, he also makes a lot of really good throws when he has time to identify who's there and or his first read is open. So he still continues to look like a typical redshirt freshman to me. He's very raw. He's got a lot of upside, uh, but he also makes a lot of errors and he misses big plays. And that's probably the thing that's hurting us the most right now is Franks is missing a lot of big plays uh, in these games that could be there for him. And of course, that kind of leads us into this question, which I'm going to ask you, Alan, from what you've seen, what we've talked about all season long, A, why aren't we executing on third down? Why does that seem to be such a problem for us? And B, is this Frank's fault? Uh, is this the coach's fault? If we had Luke Del Rio, would we have won these last two games? The answer to the last question, I would say yes. And that pains me to say that because I don't like what that says about our team and like how our style of play. But I think so. Because essentially when we got the ball – our second to last drive of the game, you know, not not the Franks pick, but the one before that with a couple minutes left in the game, I think about four, we get it to second and one, and we get stuffed twice in a row. And I think partially that comes down to two things. One, the other team knows what we're doing in these situations. We become so conservative. And I I know we would get killed if we didn't run the ball. And we threw a, you know, had an incompletion there. But the types of plays we're running in those situations, the coaching staff is capable of some creativity. Last week we saw them, you know, have the fake quarterback sneak essentially where they give it to P. Ryan, he gets into the end zone. Man, that's what's so painful about these losses is that the games are so winnable. And of course, it's coming down to the end. You need a little bit of luck, you need just some execution. But also, I don't think that they tr trust Franks to make the right read uh, on the fourth down play to end the game against LSU. I don't think he made the right read. I don't know they had the best play installed there either. And so I think they don't trust him to make a play with the game on the line and maybe rightfully so as you know, he's thrown an interception and he's thrown into coverage. 
And so I have to say it's a little bit of both there. And it, it sucks that we have to execute on these third downs and we're not. Yeah, it's it's definitely a little bit of both, but I think that you have to zoom out and address this question at a at a higher level. And and the first is if the coaches select the players, which they have, this is not their first year. They have chosen the starter, which they have. They've spent a year and a half working with Franks, which they have. At some point in time, you start to lay the blame at the feet of the coaching staff. And you say, if Franks can't make a single read, whose fault is that? And if he's still playing the game with a quarterback room that, quote, McElrain says is the best Florida's had under his tutelage, he, quote, loves the quarterback room, where is Kyle Trask? Where is Jake Allen? Where is Malik Zaire? Where is anyone else if you love this room so much and you're going to blame it on Franks with execution? Where is someone else? You're the quarterback coach. You're the quarterback whisperer. You're the guy. Where are these people? I have a hard time blaming a redshirt freshman for making redshirt freshman mistakes uh, when he's been in the program for a while. So that's discouraging. And I do think we win both of these games if we have Luke Del Rio. But in all reality, that's window dressing. Do you feel good as a Gator fan if we're barely squeaking out wins against an A&M team that is starting a true freshman in the swamp at a Saturday night game and squeaking out an Ed Orgeron coached LSU team that is running jet sweeps and high school offense to steal points. Does that make you feel better if you win that, if you win these games 24, 17 and we're, we're a mid, we're like a sort of ridiculous five and one, or we could be one and five. Does that make you feel any better? It doesn't make me feel any better. You know, Alan and I have highlighted on the show multiple times that how you look, how you play the game is one of the best indicators of your future. And we don't play the game well. And Alan, you said it right when you said, yeah, okay, it pains me to say that that's who we are as a team that we could have won with Luke Del Rio, but that's fool's gold. Don't hang your hat on winning with Luke Del Rio. That is not how Florida should be viewing themselves as, oh, hey, we could be five and one, blah, blah, blah. That's a bunch of garbage. That's very synonymous to the season that Will Muschamp had. We went 11 and two and it was totally smoke and mirrors. Won a ton of games by less than three or four points. uh, And the style of it was bad. Now, you can have seasons where you win close games and the style is good, and that's a gritty thing. You have to win games at the end. Watch the NFL each week. This is a different scenario that we are watching every single week. It's a suboptimal scenario, in my opinion, with this offensive team. And I do not put this at Frank's. I do not think the coaches have this figured out. And, oh, we're just in this little rut with a retro freshman quarterback. That is not the opinion that I hold, even though it seems like several other people that do podcasts or in the Gator Media hold to that. Uh, I have not what I've seen. It's not what I've seen in two and a half years. So I'm not going to assign this to Franks. And uh, quite frankly, you know, I'm over the way the coaches have been handling it, and our execution is bad because our coaching is bad. And that's the narrative that I subscribe to. And of course, you know, the players play into that. But that's where we are now, Alan. There were some bright spots in this game on offense, and it's going to be the same ones I think we highlight every single week, minus maybe a new one in here. I'll go first. I'm going to highlight Malik Davis again. The guy's an absolute beast. Piron had a nice game, but Malik Davis is an absolute beast of a talent. I mean, that guy, he should be the best running back in the SEC at some point in time in his career here at Florida, unless things really derail. He has got a tremendous amount of talent, hits the hole extremely hard, and makes the first guy miss almost every time. Really awesome watching that guy play. Yeah, love him. Continues to impress. I hated for him that he didn't wasn't able to pick up, you know, the the critical third down. I think, you know, would just add it to his legend if he was able to do that. Uh, Dre Massey is the guy we've talked about so much on this podcast. 
especially in comparison to how little he's played. Um, had a nice run. I liked him in the Wildcat. I don't know why we didn't go back to that more. Um, that was frustrating. And I know you mentioned the O-line. I would agree. Um, I think they played nicely. Uh, definitely gave us a chance to win this game. Um, most of the, like, I think you're right, most of the time when there's a screw-up, it's not their fault. Although sometimes it is, of course. But um, I thought they, they played pretty nicely in this game. And we ran 73 plays, which is like a minor miracle. The results are pretty much the same <laughs> as when we run 60 plays. But yeah, we, we added more plays to our quiver. The game felt like it took forever. I don't know if it felt like that watching television, but there were so many stoppages of play. And uh, both teams are going three and out so often and punting so often that, that uh, you know, you just had a lot of sort of frustration there. All right. Well, we've talked about offense. We've talked about defense. We have to talk about the special teams. I got a lot of questions over the weekend. Hey, James. Yes. Why haven't you talked about Greg Nord? And I would answer back because we spent all last year talking about why we should fire Greg Nord. And I sort of forgot to bring that in this year. Hey, the opinion of this podcast, I believe both Alan and I, I'll speak for Alan here. He can chime in if he views it differently this season, is that Greg Nord shouldn't be here. I mean, we, we, we asked the question, I think, almost every week, and I just got sick of talking about it to the point where I was like, hey, if you listen to the podcast last year, you totally know that we are no fans of Greg Nord. He should not be here. I do not know why he is here. He really cost us in this game. Uh, we continue to play safe in every single situation, including including a 17-16 lead when AM is kicking a short field goal. We left both guys back as though AM is going to fake the field goal with a minute left to potentially lose the game. You're not going to send everyone in to block a field goal? AM punted Crazy. multiple times from their own within their own 20, and we don't send a block one time? And our punt returning, we don't block anyone coming to the field on punt returns. I mean, it's really, really, really bad. Highlighted by the most important play of the game is the punt return by Kirk, who's one of the best punt returners in the league. We have a gunner to get down there. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's is McWilliams, because CJ McWilliams is their best gunner at this. And everyone else is just in a lane of their own making. No one's on the outside lane. No one's covering anyone. There's no hustle to get back to the play. It is awful. It continues to be awful every single week. It is a below-average unit. How Greg Nord is still here, I don't know. So I wanted to just address that piece. That that has not changed for us. Uh, Greg Nord should have been gone last year. And I just don't understand how this guy has a job. I really don't get it. I mean, our special teams is just abysmal. And I think for us, Alan, we had Urban Meyer special teams here at Florida. We know what it looks like and what kind of difference it makes in a game to have excellent special teams. And it just seems like we really don't care about kickoff returns, punt returns, punt block, uh, or field goal block. It's like it doesn't matter to us. This is crazy. So the, maybe the key moment in the entire game was that punt to Kirk. And we had done a fantastic job of limiting him. You know, a couple of punts by Johnny Towson, pinning him, you know, inside the five, something crazy like that. And then, unfortunately, Johnny lets loose a punt that he's able to field, and he burns us. Um, let's Let me read you some of our rankings and special teams right now. Uh, we're 104th in punt return, 79th in kick return, 111th in opponent punt return, 129th in punt returns allowed. That is truly abysmal with the kind of athletes we have. The guys that we have on the bench should be excellent at special teams. Even if you can't you know, play to a top level at the University of Florida, you're athletic enough that you can run down the field and cover a punt. It's not like we're playing like walk-ons. 
you know, or we'd have to turn to that. And I think what has made Greg Nord look good is he has two of the best specialists in the country in Johnny Towson and Eddie Pinheiro. So most of the time, if you're looking at the things that, you know, stand out the most is, are you making your field goals and how's your punter? You know, that covers a lot of terribleness, but our special teams are awful, awful, awful. And that's a disgrace. And the fact that he's still here, I mean, I think we're complaining so much about the offense that we've forgotten to complain about the special teams. And yeah, you're right. Maybe we did it so much last year that we just got sick of it. But yes, it deserves to be brought up and it killed us in this game. Oh, it's just it's just painful. It's just brutal. And I'm glad you read those rankings because it just made me want to slam my head against the podcasting table here multiple times to just oh, – it's just – there's just no excuse for that, like you mentioned. And, and, and look, there's something we're not talking about in the podcast today because we talked about it before. And that's, hey, we're missing 20 scholarship players, James. Doesn't that matter? Maybe. Maybe we win last game and this game. Fine. Do you think we win by 13 – I mean by 30 points or by 25 points or by three touchdowns? Or do you think we look amazing? No, we don't. It's delusional to think that even if we had those guys, all of a sudden we look like a top 15 team. Because we wouldn't. We wouldn't. Maybe we squeak these games out. But is that how you want to look in year three of McIlwain's tenure? I don't. That's not where I am. Yeah, James, let me let me address that because I've gotten that question a lot. And it's absolutely brutal for, for this team to lose their most talented guys. And at some point with any team, you reach a moment where you just don't have any – you know, guns left to fire. So the fact that we don't have Tyree Cleveland, not to mention Callaway and Scarlett, we kind of forgot about them. And then not having Kadarius Tony is brutal. But I think we still have enough playmakers to win games. And if we had those guys, we'd probably do win. You're right. But these are not vintage LSU and, you know, A&M teams. Where if you're squeaking out wins against, you know, top 10 teams, like you'll take that whatever way you can get. But when you're barely beating... Teams like Tennessee, Kentucky, who, if you have a good team, you crush them. And these LSU and A&M teams are fine. I guess LSU is turning around a little bit. But you're right. If we are executing well with the kind of defensive play we are getting, somewhat surprisingly maybe, uh, given our youth, we should be winning by much, much more. And that's, that's the disconcerting thing, right? So we probably, if we have those guys, I'd, we probably win the game. But you're right. That's just window dressing. Yeah, it really is. And that brings us to now our new, maybe my new favorite weekly segment, because somehow we always have something to put in this segment. The coaching corner segment. We just named this last week. Hope you guys like the name. Uh, but in the coaching corner, we discuss what what sort of boneheaded thing we did with regards to clock management or challenging a play or whatever else. And every week there's at least one or two, uh, which doesn't cease to amaze me. This one, this week, we have a special one for you. If you didn't hear about this, be ready to be very frustrated because this one, I assure you, will set you off. So get your mind back to the end of the first half. We had the ball 28 seconds left. We actually run the ball twice for like 35 yards. Say, look, thank you, AM. You're going to give us some free points. We've got a kicker that can make maybe a 70-yard field goal, at least verified on YouTube, right? No one's seen it yet. We keep waiting for it. Winds up that there are six seconds left, and we lob a little go route down the sideline. Okay, you might remember this. You might be thinking, what are we doing? Time expires and we go into halftime. After the game, Coach McElwain was asked about this. And what he said was, we had no way of stopping the clock, so we threw a jump ball hoping to get a pass interference penalty. 
The only problem, Coach Jim McElwain, is that you, in fact, did have a timeout. And the fact that after the game, while talking to the media, you still thought you didn't have a timeout left in the first half is kind of a problem for me, especially in a game that you lost by two points. You drove around Gainesville with a kicker so that you could get him here to kick these big field goals. And seemingly week in and week out, Allen, we don't get a chance to kick big field goals because we're doing something like this. Help explain this to me, Alan. Take me off the ledge here. What no, I can't. is the deal? I can't take you off the ledge. I'm going to push you over the ledge. This was astounding. I'm screaming at an already <laughs> a game that's already happened. And I type in all caps, I guess, just to assuage my own feelings onto my notes on my iPhone. Why did we not kick the field goal at the end of the first half? You know, it almost doesn't even matter whether we had the timeout or not. Because we were in position to, to at least try the field goal if we don't run that idiot last play. Just run a five-yard out, get a couple more yards, line up the kick, let him try it. There's, abs- there's no downside. I guess on the very small chance they block it, but I guess I, that's not going to happen with Eddie, I don't think. We have this guy, and he hasn't really attempted many kicks over 50 yards. I forget the stats. But that's when we should be using him. And this is really frustrating because we end up kicking 20, 30-yard field goals. right? When you want to kick a field goal is when you steal some yardage and you flame out around the 40-yard line and you bomb a 47-yard field goal. right? When you're like, oh, we got three points out of a drive that really wasn't anything instead of driving all the way down the field and kicking a short field goal. Those are the ones that eat at you. Right when you steal three points because you have an excellent kicker, those things add up. That's that's a really nice weapon to have, and we don't use them like that now because we always stall out. I think around our own forty-yard line, and so this is really really irritating to me because we could have picked up an almost almost a free extra three points. You're right because A and M was letting us run the ball when all we wanted to do was get into the half. I guess uh, this was crazy to me. I hate that we did not attempt a field goal right there. So the second item is Brandon Powell catches a pass. He's very, very close to the first down. Uh, This is now, I believe, in the third quarter, maybe late in the third quarter, if I can remember the time correctly. But regardless, it's an important time in the game. It's very close. It's a little short out route, and we do not challenge the play. We don't challenge the play. We simply bring the punt team out, and we punt the football. Uh, it seems to me, and I don't have the stats on this, so maybe this is different than I think it is. It seems to me, though, that we really rarely challenge plays here at the University of Florida. I don't know if McElwain doesn't believe in it, doesn't care about it, but we're highlighting this example in this game because I feel like you at least take a look at that. Maybe you challenge a spot and see if you wind up getting a first down. Uh, this is a much smaller issue than the one we're looking at, but it's one that's been highlighted this past week, and people have talked about it. If you look on the tape, it's very, very close. Certainly seems like someone should be buzzing him, saying, let's challenge this. But yet kind of another thing where we're just not really doing things that smart teams, I feel like, should do. All right, let's jump into a section where we discuss a few questions that we've gotten from you guys. I want to start off with this one. James, can this season be salvaged? Is there any way we'll look back on this season and consider it as a success? Well, I suppose if we beat Georgia and we beat Florida State and we won out and won our bowl game, then yes, that would be successful. But that's incredibly unrealistic. But yes, the literal answer to this question is yes, it could be. You could be, sure. What if you finished 10 and 3 or 11 and 3? How would you feel? You'd feel pretty good. 
uh, the team turned a corner. We found some some magical way to run offense. Everything's different. We who knows what? I mean, we fired Doug Nussmeyer and brought somebody great in, but. I think that's highly unlikely. So the the realist in me says that it's not going to be salvaged. But the answer to the question is, yes, it could be salvaged. If we won out and we won out convincingly and the style looks great, it could be salvaged. I will even go one step further. If over the course of the rest of this season, we saw improvement like we're seeing from the defense. If we saw that on the offense, where each week I came on this podcast and said, look at this marked improvement I'm seeing. Look at what happened here. Look at this improved play calling. I would feel a lot better about it. That would also be salvageable for me. But at this point in time, past performance is the best indicator of future results. And it would be crazy to believe those things are going to happen. Yeah, I almost don't want it to be salvaged to the point where Doug Nussmeyer gets an extra year. But yes, it can be salvaged. I think any year where you beat Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida State is a great year in some sense. Snapping that streak against Florida State potentially ruining Georgia's season would be excellent. Um, even if they come through fluky meetings. Now, I think the bigger possibility is that we don't get bowl eligible. That's certainly looming with the loss of that um, Northern Colorado game. So can the season be salvaged? Yes, I agree very much. It still can be. So I have a lot of things we can do. It's going to be a tough road to actually salvage that season. All right, we've talked a lot about the offense and defense and comparing and contrasting the two. Um, what do you think the biggest difference in their performance this year has been? And this is an interesting one because if you think about it, the performance of the defense has been beneath what we thought, you and I thought this would be. We asked, I think, before the season, would this be a top 25 unit? Could it be that way? And, and it seems like they might be playing like one by the end of the year. And I think that's part of what the expectation was. And we thought the offense, on the other hand, would be the one that would be at least top 50. And they're, again, and below 100 in the bottom 5% of college football. So both of them, you could say, are underperforming. Uh, but I think something I just noted a sentence ago or two was that the defense gets better each week on film. And the scheme is good. And you look at it and say, that makes sense. I understand why we're doing that. That is a good defense to employ against that offense. And you say, I have confidence in that. I have confidence in that. And the offense, it's the opposite. And I was talking with a friend over the weekend and I said, to me, you can look at college footballs as like a, a general. You can create a war analogy here and say, what I want this guy to be in control of my life as I'm out in a battle somewhere. Would I want to follow Nick Saban's orders? Yes. I happen to think Nick Saban would probably give me a best practice as I'm sitting in my foxhole. Uh, would I want to follow Les Miles' orders? No, I probably feel like I'm rolling the dice. I'm either going to be a hero or I'm going to die in the dumbest way possible. Would I want to follow Randy Shannon's orders? So far, yes, I would. I think so far what he's telling these players to do is right. Would I want to follow Doug Nussmeyer and Jim McElwain's orders? No, the tape would tell me no. I would be doing the wrong thing at the wrong time and I'm going to die. And I think for me, that's the difference between the offense and the defense right now is you have a leader in the defense who's kind of being maligned in some circles. And I think wrongly so uh, personally. And I think that looking at the style and how we're playing on film, that's the best analogy I could think of to try to tie the two together. So I think the defensive performance has been much better than the offense. And a lot of it has to do with my confidence in the leadership and what I see on film uh, and I think it's an important distinction because sometimes you can't just look at the statistics. They do tell the truth in the long run, but when you're looking over a six-game subset, you have to look at more than just that. It has to also pass the eye test. 
Yeah, I think really the Kentucky and Vanderbilt games kind of color a little bit of how we feel about the defense statistically. But if you were to go back at the beginning of the season, just we don't know anything, but someone would have said, basically given our numbers and our points allowed per game, which isn't always the best stat, but if you were to ask Gator fans, would you take that from this defense with a ton of question marks? You would have said yes, definitely. Because your expectation of the offense is that it would have won almost all of these games, maybe except for the Michigan one. And that's frustrating. And it would have been, you know, this really, you know, I think hopeful thing that the defense is improving and it's young players, even with all the losses that they've endured, they're still continuing to play well. And so I think you're right. That's the contrast is despite this defense not being up to the typical Gator standard, which we knew that it probably wouldn't be. It's the offense, of course, that's so, so, so far below expectations. And there's reasons for that, you know, probably production-wise, like at the top end, if you lose so many guys. But again, it comes back to style. It comes back to um, putting us in the right position. I loved your general analogy. Um, I, I don't know if I want Doug Nassemeyer leading me into battle. Um, okay, so that leads us to another question that we've gotten. It's about firing McIlwain. Um, now, we're not Auburn. We don't fire coaches, you know, the first time they have any kind of adversity. But this is an impatient fan base, and I think McIlwain has lost a significant portion of our fan base in terms of their trust in his ability, and that comes to the fact that he hasn't fixed the offense, which he was brought in to do. Let's talk about something that gets brought up a lot in this era is buyouts. James, explain to me what a buyout is and why they're there. Yeah. And this is important because I'm totally in the fire McIlwain campaign. I mean, I, I was last week and I'm, I'm on board and fire everyone. And that doesn't mean Randy. I mean, I like Randy Shannon fire. Everyone means you fire the head coach and typically most of the assistants leave. But for the record, I do think, like I said, on the defensive side of the ball, uh, things are being done well there. Maybe the whole, the hole there has been some of the recruiting, which we've identified. And that is a problem. And I, I hang that at their feet. But the buyouts is really the biggest problem that we have right now. And the first question you have to ask yourself if you're on the fire McElwain train like I am, is what would it cost Florida to do it? Well, essentially, it would cost us $18.5 million if we fired the staff at the end of this season. Now, if you're asking yourself what a buyout is, which is the question Alan just asked me, it's very simple. It's something in your contract that states if you get fired without cause, so you didn't commit a crime, you didn't do something that justify that uh, you know causes your contract to be breached, which is not performance, by the way. Uh, if you just lose football games and you don't do other things that cause your contract to be breached, then if you get fired, the remaining years on your contract, McElwain's runs to 2023, gets bought out by the university. If an NFL team were to come in and want to hire McElwain or he wanted to go to a different college, they would pay the buyout to the University of Florida. So your buyout essentially guarantees the coach the money in the event that something goes wrong. Uh, this practice to me is absolutely ridiculous, Alan. Explain to me how Jim McElwain has a $12.5 million buyout right now. Now, it's both Jeremy Foley's fault and our new AD's fault, Strickland, because here's what happened. Foley signs McElwain to the contract. He gives him X amount of years, and he gives him 
a buyout that is $2.25 million per year over his contract. After last season, before this season, new AD comes in, gives McIlwain an extension on his contract, as well as a $250,000 per year buyout plus an additional year, which adds several more million onto that. So $12.5 million for McIlwain. Now, the question we got to ask ourselves here, and you should be asking yourself, is why at the University of Florida do we have any particular language that specifies a buyout? Because the odds are, Alan, most of the coaches we hire are going to fail. That's the odds. And most of the coaches we hire are not going to leave for another school. That's just yeah, not going to happen. Really, yeah, that's the yeah, thing. This is the, it's not going to happen. So why do we have a buyout that is only going to punish us? It's only really going to hurt us. Now, if you're Washington State and you have Mike Leach right now and the athletic director just left to go to Nebraska, you're really happy you have a buyout because you want some financial compensation when Mike Leach leaves, you want to make it harder for him to leave. But we are the University of Florida. If you're going to have any buyout, you can put it in there that it only comes into play if you leave the university. But why you are negotiating a buyout that hurts you for firing a coach to me is the height of insanity. And look, I know what the argument is. We're going to talk about it, Alan. I want, you, I want to hear your thoughts on this. The argument is the coach won't take the job without the buyout because that's what the market is saying right now. Well, look, as an investor, I can tell you it's a terrible market practice. It is ridiculous. And the University of Florida has plenty of leverage to hire a football coach and say, hey, if you want this job, we're not going to give you a $12.5 million buyout. And I'm pretty sure a guy like McIlwain, who wasn't exactly having his door banged down by every you know major college football team in the country, was going to take that job, regardless of what that buyout negotiation was. And if he wasn't, then fine. Let him stay at Colorado State. But Allen, what is this madness athletic directors are engaging in? I mean, they're... Ed Orgeron at $18 million, us at $12.5 million. These coaches are not coaches other people even want. They're unproven. What is going on? Help explain. It's it crazy. You. You're, you're right. It's it's mostly because of the current coaching market. And the argument I think these coaches' agents use is that if you don't give them this kind of buyout, it, it's kind of bad faith. Like other people will use it in negative recruiting and things like that, that your coach isn't as secure. But you're totally right. At a place like UF, or USC or Texas, no one's leaving to take another job. And if they do, oh, well. Now, I could see you definitely, if you want to put in the one side to buy out, that's fine. You know, I'm sure coaches wouldn't care all that much. But it is crazy that these buyouts exist. And there, there's really no reason for them. And if you're a Colorado State, yeah, you have a buyout on there in there in case you know, somebody like Florida wants to come along and give you $7 million. That makes a lot of sense. The fact that Ed Orgeron has a buyout at LSU is crazy. He would have taken that job for a bowl of gumbo, right? I mean, no one is coming and trying to hire him. It's absolutely indefensible. And at the time, I don't know, when you're hiring Jim McElwain, maybe that's just part of the thing. You don't think too much about it. But you have to think four years down the line, if this doesn't work out, are we able to make a change? And right now we've painted ourselves into a corner. I don't think we're able to do it. Uh, our athletic department isn't one to throw around money willy-nilly. We don't know what Scott Strickland is totally all about. But, yeah, it. I don't think you're going to see Jim McElwain fired specifically for the financial reasons, if not for you know, kind of the investment we have in him and the staff. Yeah, and it just leaves us with an interesting scenario strategically. And so that's what you've got to think about. If you're in the fire McElwain camp like I am, 
you then have to prepare yourself for the realistic scenario that even if we were to lose against Georgia, lose against South Carolina, lose against Florida State, have a losing season, it is highly unlikely McIlwain gets fired. In fact, he is perfectly following in Will Muschamp's footsteps right now. It's like the echo of Will Muschamp. And it's it's ridiculous. It's just sickening to think that there's a $12.5 million buyout on this guy. I mean, come on. He had, he'd proven nothing before he came here. And by the way, different topic for a different day, Alan, and we should get into this. I don't think us hiring McIlwain was wrong. I think per my own plan, right? And this is what we'll talk about later in the season, Alan, is who do we hire and how do we hire them? And we're not going to cover it on this show. I get that question a lot. I'm sure you are too, Alan, is who do you want to hire? We're going to get to that. We will get to that. But we wanted to address all of these sort of analysis things now. And we'll talk about how would we hire somebody if we were athletic directors. But I can assure you one thing. You hire people that give you the best chance of success, knowing that the majority of time, you're not going to get a top 10 coach. That's just the way that investing in a coach works. That's what it is. It's a risk-reward proposition. I have no problem hiring coaches that fail because most of them are going to. Your job is to try to identify the ones that give you the best chance of success. And then in my opinion, cut bait as soon as you can. I do not buy into this narrative that you wreck your program. I don't think that's true. I can give you a million counterexamples where that's not true. But we are stuck in a bad situation right now. And it's going to be very interesting to see what Strickland does. This is his first real challenge at the University of Florida. As far as I can tell, here in the city of Gainesville, people are over McIlwain. They don't care about his SEC East championships. They really don't care about his demeanor. And it seems that the tide is strongly turning against him. I'm not sure if he's aware of it, but it's going to make for a very interesting rest of this season. So after technical difficulties last week where we lost the Kiwan Ratliff interview, we've brought him back on this week. So Kiwan, thanks for being gracious with your time. I promise to watch the recording the entire time to make sure it doesn't go off this time. But uh, <laughs> welcome back to the program. I know we've been texting back and forth for a week, so it's, it's, it's good to have you back here. I can't wait to get your thoughts. I appreciate you for having me back on. All right, so let's just start with the big question. Uh, we lost again here, two in a row. What is your opinion of where the program is right now? Uh, honestly, right now the program is it's not in, a, in, in the worst spot that it's been in in a while, but it's in a bad spot. It, it kind of reminds me of, of my senior year when we were sitting at the in, uh, in midpoint of the season. We were three and three. And everybody counted us out. Everybody was looking at us like, you know, we're we're the worst UF team in the history of, of football. So I believe that they're they're in a similar position as we were back in '03. So let me ask you this very bluntly: Which direction is this program headed in? Is the arrow pointing up or down? Essentially, I'm asking you: Should McElwain be the coach after this season? I believe McElwain should still be the coach after the season. Honestly, I don't fault him entirely for what's going on with us because, as we all know, he's not the one calling the X's and O's on offense and making the play calls. I feel like he's a he's a great motivator. He's a great recruiter. He, he knows his X's and O's. He knows what he's doing. But I believe that for us to be as successful as we can be, I think it may be time for him to take over the helm and start calling some of those offensive points. I mean, obviously we have a problem – right now with the offense three straight years of being below 100 just watching it on tape gives you plenty of indication that it's it's not good 
what needs to be done to fix it? If you're a key one in charge of, of the offense and you can do what you want, are you firing people? Are you changing offensive staff? Are you changing style and strategy? What are you doing? What would be your steps to correct it? I mean, honestly, I believe that the, the most obvious thing to do is to change the style. Our, the style of offense that we run is, is pretty much similar to the LSUs and the Alabamas and the, the, power, the powerful teams, the, the teams that line up in more of your, your old school Big Ten football where Nebraska football, where you line up and you're just going to line up, put a hat on the hat and overpower you. I don't believe that that's our style of, of play, and I don't believe that's the style of players that we have in the state. If you look around the state of Florida, you'll find the, the, the most speed out of any state in the country, I believe. So I believe for us to be truly successful, and if you look at the history of our program, we've been successful when the offensive coordinator comes out and uses that speed to his advantage. Which offensive style do you prefer? Uh, would you want us to see us running a more spread offense? Oh, I would love to see us running that, that spread slash air raid style of offense. If you look at the wide receivers and, and the running backs and the tight ends we have on our team, all those guys are explosive playmakers in the open field. They're not you know, prototypical possession X wide receivers that you put outside and they can run that, that dig or that curl and post up and catch that ball and, and play like a big wide receiver. We have more guys that, that rely on speed and rely on their quickness. So Whenever you have a team full of guys that are that are speedy guys and quick guys, you know that that spread style would would fit more to us. And I feel like the way we're recruiting, the players that we have committed in the future, and the players that we have on 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 the team right now would greatly benefit from being one on one in open space with a lot of these DBs and a lot of these linebackers and, and take advantage of our our mismatches. And I feel like if we we got the ball quick into their hands a lot more. It would open up the run, and it would also make our offensive line job a lot easier. Is there a coach you like right now whose style is exemplifying what you're talking about? I mean, I'm I'm biased because I'm, I live right here in Orlando, so I've watched what Coach Frost has done with that program at UCF, and I'm watching that offense put up. I just watched them on Saturday put up 49 points in the first half, and, and then they put the brakes on it in the second half and just cruised to an easy victory. They come out, they play fast, they get the ball in their playmakers' hands. They have a running back who I've worked with that's no more than 170 pounds. And this kid, every week, he gets an open space, open field, and takes one to the house 50, 60 yards. He knows how to, how to get his guys in one-on-one matchups, and you make one guy miss, and strike up the band. That that style of offense, I feel, would be the best style of offense for us. But you have other other guys around the country, like Oklahoma State, and of course the Urban Myers, and you know, there's a lot of offenses out there that are putting up points with a lot less talent than what we have. Let's talk about the quarterback position for a minute. You know, Felipe Finks is a redshirt freshman. He's struggled a little bit. Um, should he be having more success or is the coaching to blame for his struggles? Honestly, if we would have had this conversation like we did last week, I would have put it all on the coaching. But this week, I, I actually watched Coach Nussmeyer open up a little bit more. I actually watched him give Felipe a chance to throw the ball on first down a lot more. I watched him 
call an aggressive game plan a lot more this game than he has in the past. And I was calling for that because we really didn't know how Felipe would react to that, how Felipe would play with the more aggressive, more open offense. And after watching Felipe this week, I really don't believe Felipe's ready to, to take over an offense and lead us there. He's, he's not seeing the field. He's not scanning the field. He's locking on to his, his initial receiver. He, he never comes back to his left-hand side. As guys running wide open where, you know, those are things that a quarterback that's starting at the University of Florida and the SEC, those are the basic fundamentals that you expect those kids to already have. So as a coach, when you're coaching a guy and you have to start back over from the basics on little things like that, that sometimes can hinder your play calling. And now I see why Nussmeyer has scaled it back some and tried to give them just basic vanilla one or two read plays. And, and I mean, playing against defenses like LSU and Georgia and even Texas A&M, you can't expect to be successful when you have to hold your quarterback's hands the way that Nussmeyer has had to hold Felipe's. Now, Kiwan, the question that comes when I'm hearing you talk about that is, Franks is a guy that McIlwain selected. Franks said before this, I mean, uh, McIlwain said before the season that this is the best quarterback room he's had at the University of Florida. He's guys, he's got guys like Kyle Trask. He's got Malik Zaire. Of course, he lost Luke Del Rio. He's got Jake Allen. They've had a year and a half with Franks. How long does it take? And I know with your seven-on-seven team, certainly you're evaluating quarterbacks all the time. How long does it take for a coach to know what he's got with his quarterback? Honestly, I believe a full year. But if you give a guy a full year in your system and you watch him develop and you watch him grow after that year, you can pretty much judge what you have. Now, that's not to say he can't get better or he can't get worse, but you can pretty much have a baseline to go off of of, of the talent level that you have. And with Felipe being there as a red shirt for a whole year and now going through basically a half a season plan, I'm pretty sure that the coaches – on, on that staff, know what they have in Felipe. And if Felipe is the best guy for the job, they know it. If there's another guy that may be able to do it, they'll know that as well. But I think if you give a quarterback a solid year in the same system and he comes back a year or two and it's the same system, then you can really use that as a true evaluation of what you have. Now, zooming out a little bit, we've had our fair share of quarterback problems here at the University of Florida but we've also had several guys transfer and have tremendous success. Recently, Will Greer, before that, guys like Jacoby Brissett, even a guy like Jeff Driscoll is on a practice roster in the NFL. What is going wrong with quarterbacks here at the University of Florida? Why aren't we developing them? Why aren't we getting what we need out of them? Uh, what seems to be the problem in your estimation with why we just can't get a signal caller here? I believe that we're not catering to the skill set of our quarterback. If you have a quarterback who's a running style quarterback, you can't just say, okay, well, we're going to run this style of offense. If your quarterback does something really well, I feel like you should cater and adjust to what he, to his skill set of what he does well. And I feel like our offense, ever since T-Boy has left, has been pretty much base, base and set in stone, and our quarterbacks haven't fit that. We haven't recruited guys that come in and fit our offensive style. Now, that's not saying that, you know, those guys couldn't adjust and play different because obviously they can because all those guys you just named, the Jacoby Brissett, the 
the Jeff Driscoll's, those guys are in the NFL playing in a pro-style offense. But for us to get what we can at the University of Florida, the pro-style offense may not be best suited for those guys. So I feel like with a Jeff Driscoll, we should have moved to more of a spread and let him use his legs if he was going to start. And with Jacoby Brissett, if he was going to start, we should have let him use his arm a little bit more. But like I said, it seems like we're so stuck on running our system no matter who the quarterback is, that sometimes that puts us behind the eight ball. All right, we're going to ask one more question on offense before we really get to your specialty, the defense. A lot of talk is going to be made over the end of this season and heading into next season on who we should retain on the offensive staff. So given what you're seeing now, and I know that could be different from last week to this week, are you in favor of retaining our offensive staff as it is in hopes that the players grow after another year, or do you think changes should be made? Honestly, in order for us to show that we're really trying to make it to that next level, I think changes have to be made. There's there's nothing that has shown me in these first what, six weeks that our offense is pointed in the right direction. I mean, we look just as bad as we did now as we did last year, as we did the year before. So there's nothing really positive to go off of. If we were coming out losing these games and we were putting up 500 yards on offense – then now it's one of those ones where you can say, okay, well, we don't need to change the offense. We just need to win. But right now, we score 21 points on offense every week this year, and we're undefeated right now. So we can't come out and get three touchdowns from our offense. Something has to change, that's, and that's obvious. We said coming in that tight end was going to be a strong, strong suit for us. I haven't seen the tight ends until this week involved in anything other than blocking. And we have small athletic receiving tight ends, but we're keeping them in to block. Whereas we should, you know, if we're going to block and we're, if we're just going to run the ball, I mean, maybe we should spread it out and, and get less guys in the box because those guys aren't blocking tight ends. So it's one of those ones where special teams and, and tight end coach, I believe, is the same. So we're, we're lacking in that area. We're lacking on the offensive play caller area. So those are two changes that I think should be made. I believe our offensive line has, has came around, and I believe, shoot, uh, Coach Sider has came in and got those running backs to play out of their mind, especially when you think about Jordan Scarlett was supposed to be a 30-carry-a-game a type of back, and he goes out on Tuesday of week one, and you still come in and, and keep churning out 100-yard, 90-yard running backs with freshmen and sophomore in that, that locker room. So I believe our, our strong, strongest points are two new coaches that we brought in. If we can get our other coaches on that offensive staff to, to coach and be at the level that those guys are going at, I believe we'll be in the right direction. All right, let me ask you about some of our defensive coaches. Give me your thoughts on Randy Shannon, the scheme that he runs. Is this defense where you thought it would be right now? I would say the defense is playing a lot better than I assumed it would be, especially with Marcel Harris going down. And then the linebackers being banged up in with a lot of the suspensions and things that's going on at that position. I knew that our defensive line would 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 you know be our our strongest position on the defense probably, but as a whole, I believe our defense is playing a lot better than what anybody would have. If you'd have told guys at the beginning of the year that Chauncey was going to have an up and down year, and Duke was going to be hurt, Nick uh, Washington was going to be hurt and we were going to have a bunch of freshmen and first-year players out there, 
nobody would have expected those guys to bounce back and come out there and play, especially as much man-to-man as we play, as much man-to-man and and hold teams to under 300 yards the way this defense is. Do you like this scheme? A lot has been made of Randy Shannon being too vanilla, too basic, too simple, not complicated enough. How do you feel about his strategy on defense? I mean, honestly, I love it because it allows these young boys to get on the field and just play. They can just react. They don't have to go out. They don't have to think. As a as a freshman, as a sophomore, first-year starter on defense, the last thing you want to be is unsure of yourself. And what Coach Shannon is doing is he's allowing those guys to be sure of themselves, even though sometimes the call may not be the call that he would have made. Let's, let's say he had five, you know, senior DBs playing out there in the nickel and you have a, 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 a senior laden defense. He has a bunch of freshmen out there, so he's simplifying it for them so that they can just go out, react, play fast, and do what they do. Because now those guys aren't those guys don't have to be as vocal with each other. They don't have to be the leaders in, in the combo coverages to where with motions and shifts and different different formations the defense changes. We're very vanilla, we're very basic, but you have to be these young guys. And, and you'll see with all those guys in year two and year three of their college careers, you'll see how complex and, and how, how crazy and exotic some of those blitzes can be once those guys are smarter football players. Yeah, we saw a little bit of that this past weekend. In fact, I think A&M had about four passing plays that were really successful. And on every single one, it was a miscommunication as to whether we were in a combo man zone or just a straight man. Uh, and I know you mentioned when we talked last week that you played on a defense that had some inexperience and just how different it is with regards to communication and what you're capable of running uh, in that situation. Tell us a little bit about that because I know that gets lost a lot in the wash. Your experience playing on a veteran defense versus your experience playing on an inexperienced defense. Well, early on in my career, I was blessed to play with you know a lot of experienced guys like the Leo Sheffield and Marquise Manning and Todd Johnson, and a lot of guys who played a lot of football in the back end. And then later in my career, I had the chance to play with a lot of freshmen: the Earl Everest, the Channing Crowders, the Marcus Thomas, the uh, Ray McDonald, a lot of Jordan Terry, a lot of those guys that were young. And when we first came in. The defense was so complex, and it was it was crazy because you would have built-in three and four calls sometimes into to the defense depending on what they did. And the only way you got on the field is if you knew all three or four of those calls. So later on in my career, when Coach Strong came in and we had a bunch of freshmen, we basically played the same front, and we had maybe one or two blitzes the whole game going into games. But we were still successful on defense because we had four senior DBs in the back end who can make sure to, to get guys lined up. Like I can remember games where Gus Scott would come out and he would have to get Channing Crowder lined up every play before he could even line up. I guess his job was just to make sure that Channing knew what he was doing because Channing was our best player at that position, although he didn't get a chance to go to camp and do all the other things to where he would learn the defense the way you wanted him to but he had to be on the field. So when you have leaders in the back end, sometimes you can run some of those exotic things. And that guy may not know it as long as you have guys that can get them lined up and put them in spots. So it's always good to have those guys that are veteran leaders that have played a lot of football. But when you don't have those guys, you have to find a way just to, just to get it done and get off the field. 
And so essentially, you're sort of describing the Gators losing Marcel Harris this year. It's been talked about as maybe the key loss of the season, even bigger than a Scarlet or a Callaway. And it sounds like that's what you're saying right now. If you had a Marcel Harris, he can call out what the offense is about to run. He can call out some route combos. He can line guys up, make sure they're ready for the play. And of course, we don't have that. So we're sort of missing a a leader to get the guys lined up right now. Exactly. With Marcel, he was a a highly recruited guy, a five-star kid coming out of high school, could have went wherever he wanted, you know, came in with some injuries early on, but he was getting to that point. If you watched him last year, you saw how important he was for us, especially on plays like the fourth down play against LSU and, you know, the, the, the Florida State game, the plays he made in that game. And he was a guy that could have came out last year and would have got drafted pretty high. But his in his mind, he wanted to be a first, second-round guy, so he came back. And that injury put us behind the eight ball because he was going to be the heart and soul of that defense. He was going to be our key guy. He was going to make all those checks. He was going to make sure guys got lined up. He was going to be the guy in the back end on plays like the Michigan game where they threw the deep bomb for a touchdown. Marcel would have been back there to make sure he raced that. He would have been the guy there, the the, the guy covering on, you know, some of those plays where you see some of the safeties in, in bad spots. He would have been the guy that would allow Chauncey to move around and play some nickel, play some corner, play some other positions where Chauncey could have played and been more comfortable, whereas now he's playing at a safety spot and he has to think a lot more. He has to be a lot smarter. And that's I think that kind of hindered his play early on in the year as well. So if you have a Marcel out there, now those young guys on the outside, I, I think their gameplay would have been taken to the next level just because now you have the brains of the operation on the field to run it. It's kind of like losing Green Bay just lost Aaron Rodgers. Now Jordan Nelson's stats are going to suffer. And the Marcus Adams stats are go- everybody's stats are going to suffer because the brains of the operation isn't there, so things aren't going to work the same. And that's how our defense is without Marcel. It, it just doesn't click the same without him on the field. One of the bright spots this year has been the play of our freshman corners, Henderson and Wilson. What has allowed them to excel so quickly? Well, I think with Marco, it's, it's Chad. It's his dad. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. And not only his two sons, you look at the guys out of South Florida that he trains, rarely do you see a guy that has trained with Chad come out and he's not college ready. Chad gets his guys prepared to, to come in and contribute on a big level right away. And it also helped Marco watching his brother the past few years in high school, coming down to the games every week, being so comfortable in the swamp, being comfortable with guys like Duke and Marcel, looking at those guys like they were already family before he got there because he'd been around them so much. Now, that's not you can do all of that, and if you don't have the skill, it doesn't mean anything. So obviously he had the skill set that was going to be able to help him be successful. Then with Chris, I'm, I'm, I'm more surprised with him because he's new to the position. He hasn't been playing DB long. He has all the attributes. He has all the skill sets to be successful, but he just doesn't have the rep. He hasn't taken the reps in game action as much as a corner. So for him to come out and to play and compete the way that he has, he's been the biggest surprise to me because, like I said, he hasn't been at the position long enough, and he's out there in the SEC playing man-to-man on – 80% of his snaps, and he's holding it down like he's been at corner his whole life. All right, I've got a couple of sort of player 
mindset questions to ask you. And I'll start first with the recruits and then I'll go second to the guys on our roster. So how does our current play affect the guys that are either committed right now for the 2018 class or are thinking about and going through the recruitment process? Does it affect them to watch what's going on on Saturdays? Honestly, I think it can work for and against us. I believe it can work against us because, well, obviously, as an offensive player, you go out and watch, you know, year in and year out, us come out. And I think they set a stat during the game where we hadn't had a 300-yard passer in 17 games. Stuff like that could, could hurt us as far as wide receiver recruits go. But it can also help us because, now you look at a guy like Matt Corral who's thinking, hey, they haven't had that because I haven't been there yet. I haven't got there yet. So recruiting-wise, it just depends on the player. For me, honestly, I was looking at styles of play more than anything when I was being recruited because I believe that you know, the, the proof is, is what I see on Saturdays. If you tell me, oh, yeah, I'll get you the ball and we'll get you 1,500 yards in a season, if you haven't gotten one guy 1,500 yards in the past five or six years, it's not going to change me. So that could hurt them. But at the same time, now a lot of these guys always thinking they're these five-star and four-star guys, the way they're getting recruited and the way they're being told that they're the, the best thing since sliced bread, a lot of the times they think that they're the reason why things aren't going good, so they're going to come in and change it. So honestly, I think it can help us and hurt us at the same time. Now, you're uniquely qualified to talk about recruiting because, as we talked last week, beyond your seven-on-seven work where you frequently have some of the best players in the state playing for you, you're also going to be doing something I know with Derek Brooks where you've got really the majority of the best recruits in the state of Florida uh, playing for you in December. And the question that I have is, what is the perception of the Florida program amongst recruits right now in comparison to a Florida State or a Miami? Is there a... A perceived downgrade, is it like Florida has less swagger, Florida's less cool, Florida's less exciting? Or do recruits view Florida State, Miami, Florida, all kind of the same? Honestly, it's it's crazy because with that with the with the Legends game that you mentioned that, that I'm coaching in, we have a, a group chat on Twitter with all the boys that are committed to playing the game. And as you know, all the twenty nineteen commits are on the team. And there's a lot more guys like the Akeem Dents and the the, the Jaden Davises out of St. Thomas. And there's a, there's a DeMonte Howard who commit. It's a lot of guys that are committed to Florida State and Miami as well on the team. And if you've seen the amount of back and forth that's going on about the University of Florida and all these guys that are getting up every weekend to go to the games, and there's a lot of excitement still, win, lose, or draw about the program. These guys are, are looking forward to going up to the Florida State game. These guys are, are looking forward to going up for junior days. And, I mean, they're, they're excited about the program as if we were ranked in the top 20 right now just from the sounds of their communicating back and forth. So, I mean, it's, it hasn't hurt us in recruiting as much as most people would think. But I believe if we finish the season the way we're playing right now, it still has time to go the other way. So you've got the recruits, and then you've also got the guys in the roster now. What does it take or when, as a player at a college like the University of Florida, do you start to doubt 
your coaching staff? Because I know the guys say they don't hear the noise, but I know they hear it. I know they see what's going on in the media. I know they know the same narratives we're talking about now. When does that start to get in your head and you start thinking, hey, maybe my coach doesn't know what's best right now? Oh, that uh, that happens all the time. That happens even when you're winning. I mean, at every level of football, you're going to have selfish teammates, no matter what level you are. You could be, we could be six and all right now, ranked number one in the country, and you'll have guys talking about transferring still. It's just there are selfish football players on on any team. So good, bad, or indifferent, guys are going to down talk their coaches if things aren't going their way, but. With the way things are going right now, I'm pretty sure there's guys in there doubting the play calling. I'm pretty sure there's guys in there doubting the depth charts. I'm pretty sure you've seen things like the the running back, uh, Lemons, had posted, tweeted, and said something. There's frustration going on because every, every guy on that roster believes that he should be starting. And if he didn't, he shouldn't be at the University of Florida. Now, frustration sets in and guys say and do stupid things that they may or may not mean, but you can't allow that to creep in and break your team unity. And that's what happens when those guys start dogging the coaches and second-guessing the coaches because if you're second-guessing the coaches, then you become a cancer to the team. And now you may get two or three other guys that agree with you, and now you got a split amongst the team. So right now, I, I, I'm pretty sure there's guys in there doubting the coaches, and I'm pretty sure there's guys doubting the coaches at Alabama right now. All right, one last question here for you. The Gators are headed into a bye week. How much can you actually change over a bye week? A lot is made, you know, we're heading to the bye week. Maybe things will be different. How much can you actually change, and could we change enough to beat a team like Georgia? The bye week is the perfect time to change because for the first time since fall camp, you have a chance to just focus on yourself. Throughout the season, you can't really focus on yourself the way you can in the offseason or during a bye week because you have to focus on your next opponent. You have to focus on the game plan. You have to focus on the, the strategy that, that the coaches mm-hmm. did. You have to focus on the, the plays or whatever that's going into that game, and you have a small – window of opportunity to get it done throughout the bye week you have no worries you have no game plan you have no team that you're preparing for even though they're going to start implementing some of the things that georgia does and going against the things that that georgia will do at the same time you can put in a few wrinkles you can put in a few gadgets you can put in a few new calls because you have time to work on them and you don't have to rush it you don't have to feel like oh in this two-hour period we have to make sure we get this X, Y, and Z done. You can make sure to just work on X today, work on Y tomorrow, and work on Z the next day to make sure that those things that you change look the way they do. Then you come back next week, you watch the film, and you can throw some things out, and then you can put in a couple wrinkles off of the things that you like. So right now is the perfect opportunity for them to change and, and, and figure out some different things that may work. And honestly, this is the type of game that if you look back, this is the type of game that we've typically won. I remember playing against Georgia in, in school where they would go 12-1. and one, They would go 11-2, and two, and one of those two losses would be to us, you know, to a team that they were supposed to be better than. So if, if, if McElwain wants to try to get this thing back rolling and, and get everybody back on his side and get 
positive vibes going back in that locker room, this would be the biggest, best win that he could have. He is Kiwan Ratliff. He's certainly my favorite guest. He's a UF Hall of Famer, uh, former corner, NFL corner. Kiwan, I think it's safe to say for me that if you wanted to put your hat in the ring for any coaching position at UF, I would uh, strongly be in favor of that down the road. But I always appreciate your candor and your intelligence, and we look forward to visiting with you again sometime in the future. Oh, anytime. I Like I say all the time, I appreciate you for having me on, man. Oh, Alan, I just love talking to Kiwan Ratliff. Like, I'm so happy we got him back on for that segment. Uh, I just love asking him questions. I feel like I could ask him each week. He could be like a, a guest nonstop and just maybe even the three of us have a discussion. Maybe one day. But now let's turn our attention to what happened last weekend outside of Florida, Texas A&M, because it was a crazy weekend of college football. This is why, if you're a college football fan, you love college football. Let's just walk through the notable results on Friday night. You may have missed it. You probably read about it. Didn't even know what was happening. Clemson loses on the road at Syracuse 27-24. Super, super surprising result. They also lose their starting quarterback which definitely changes things up for them down the road. Alan, your thoughts? I've liked this Syracuse team for a little while. They haven't quite put it together yet, but Dino Babers is a fun coach. Man, these Friday night games, as we'll see, are really trap games. This sucks for Clemson. They still have a chance to recover if they can find another quarterback. Washington State 3. Mike Leach got a lot of love on the pod last week, but we also mentioned... Though what Mike Leach does is lose games he shouldn't on the pod last week. <laughs> Washington State 3, Cal 37. Now, in fairness to Cal, I've watched a lot of their games because I tend to love to watch the Pac-12 after dark games. And they've lost, and they've lost crookedly in several of them. Uh, but I actually think that their their young coach is, is doing a pretty good job with them. But this is crazy, Alan. There's no way to make sense of this result. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right on the money with Cal that they – they're an intriguing team and improving team. Not that Washington State lost, but they lost by this score is really, I mean, it's just a bad look for them. This shouldn't happen. Um, yeah, you know, Leach is capable of great highs and great lows. So if you were thinking maybe it would be great to hire him, results like this should give you a little bit of pause. Maybe the game of the weekend, especially the decision of the weekend, was Southern Cal 28 Utah 27. If you saw nothing about the game, Utah goes for two with 42 seconds left to win the game and they don't get it. I could do a five-minute monologue about game theory and why I didn't like them going for two with 42 seconds left. Maybe we'll save that for a different episode of the pod. But USC continues to win every single game close or lose one in this case. Very weird team. Utah's good. Kyle Winningham has a great program out there. Hats off to him because year in and year out, Poster Meyer, that's a good football team. But if you're a USC fan, I think you're having a hard time figuring out who your team is right now. Yeah, they're they're a weird squad. I mean, they have such good talent in so many places, but they can't seem to put it together every week. But if they can beat Notre Dame, the end of their schedule gets a lot easier. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens next week with them. Yeah, big game coming up there. And, of course, my favorite game to watch every single week, the Will Greer game. Will Greer, 46, Texas Tech, 35. They were down 35-17 before Will amped it up in the second half and took West Virginia to glory. I'm sure they burnt couches, got all excited, beats Cliff Kingsbury's Texas Tech squad. Uh, impressive showing yet again for Will Greer. I mean, the guy is is sort of lighting college football on fire. He's got 21 touchdown passes already. 
in case you're counting at home, the Florida Gators have four touchdown passes to Wilgers 21. Thoughts on that one? <laughs> this is exactly what we predicted could happen with him and Holgerson. And I was all ready to anoint, maybe not anoint, but give props to Kingsbury this year because Texas Tech was playing so much better defense. But they fell apart in the second half. I was watching a good amount of this game. Will Greer is fantastic. I mean, the Will the Will Greer watch every week here on the pod. Um, yeah, it it's like a little knife in my side every time he plays so well. I'm pulling for the kids that you know. I don't. I want him to do well, but it it's tough watching him light the world on fire somewhere else. Yeah, I can vividly remember just sitting in Studio A. Uh, next to you when the news broke it's like a it's like a funny thing because it's just how painful it's been for us in reality will should just be another guy that came through the program that's really good and he's going to play in the nfl and there's several of those guys to lean our hat on but (laughs) it's just not reality for us so it becomes much bigger than that tcu the team that will fought so admirably last week i just like using will adjectives too uh (laughs) beats kansas state 26 to 6 in sort of a messy weather game uh, TCU is, is for real. And we said that if they beat West Virginia, they'd be for real. And I, I think that they're proving that. So keep an eye on TCU. Very sneaky sort of dark horses team uh, with Kenny the Trill, Thrill uh, Hill over there. Florida State 17, Duke 10. Duke had the ball driving at the end, could not equal the score. Any feelings or thoughts on this one besides sadness that Florida State won? <laughs> no, I mean, I, the Duke, the Dukies could have pulled this off and they didn't. And that was frustrating. Um, FSU squeaks one out. I mean, they're, they're I think, narrowly avoiding a, a completely disastrous season by winning games like this. Yeah, the ACC is is good. I keep trying to tell people, don't sleep on Florida State. They've actually played a very tough schedule with regards to who they played. NC State is the real deal, which we've been talking about. Wake Forest is a solid football team. Duke is a solid football team. That seems crazy to say those things. They're not in Florida State's caliber, but they're playing a true freshman, and it's very, very hard to play a true freshman with their offensive line. So I'm sure Jimbo is thrilled with anyone that he gets right now. And like you mentioned, this season could be way more crooked than it is for them. But they sort of keep pulling stuff out. Oklahoma, Texas. Maybe this is the game, along with the USC game, that's really probably making Texas fans excited. I mean, you hate to lose to your rival. But this Texas team was in this game right down till the end. And Oklahoma, maybe this raises more questions for them than it does give answers. Because Lincoln Riley's star was sort of shining brightly. Then they lose just inexplicably. Uh, and now they kind of followed up with the Texas game. This is a win, and they're going to take it. You beat your rival, you're happy about it. But certainly not, I think, the game that Oklahoma fans probably were hoping for. Probably not, but I bet most of them are generally pretty relieved to come out of this game with a win because there's definitely moments where they've taken a huge L when they shouldn't have. Yeah, and speaking of freshman quarterbacks, I love, and I keep saying it every week, he might as well be on the Wilger watch, but Texas's freshman quarterback is amazing. And so, yes, it can be done. Uh, fans out there that continue to think that you cannot succeed as a freshman or reserve freshman, it is being done all the time in college football. So it can be done. Washington 7. This might be the most surprising game really of the week, though. Washington 7. Chris Peterson's Washington Huskies 7 versus Arizona State 13. I have no explanation for this game, Alan. This is <laughs> this is not a game that Chris Peterson loses. He doesn't do this. He's made his living off not losing these games. Very, very odd result there. Yeah, I can only speculate because I obviously didn't see any of this. But read a little bit about it. I mean, ASU hadn't kept anyone under 10 points in like 100 years. I I don't know how this happened, like other than everyone got assassinated. I mean, you're right. 
when you say maybe the strangest, most inexplicable result in a week of inexplicable results, I don't know. Uh, Washington looked poised to maybe steal that Pac-12 championship and maybe a playoff bid, but they're in trouble now. And that's a lot of games that we include on the national slate because there are so many kooky upsets. This is a week where no top 25 teams are playing each other, but on weeks like that, don't sleep on college football. Love it. All right, still a little SEC roundup. Man, the weirdness keeps rolling here. Auburn 23, LSU 27. Auburn was up, I think, 20 to nothing. Wow. Wow is right. I sent a text to my 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 probably maybe somewhat, I don't know, infamous Gator Game Day text group about how <laughs> what a sure thing. I should have thrown like a thousand dollars down on this game. We talked about it last week on the pod. Give me the money. What a piece of cake. Only to have LSU come storming back and win this game. All I can think about is if you're an Auburn fan, this is why Gus Malzahn is going to get fired at the end of the year because this is just not something that you can explain. LSU's throwing the ball sort of all over you. You're supposed to have a good defense. You stop scoring after the first half. Uh, But it does prove that LSU has two of the best coordinators money can buy, which we highlighted during the LSU week. Alan, you talked about Matt Cannon during the preseason And you are seeing a very real effect in LSU with that. They're not a good football team. They're still coached, I think, by a general that nobody wants to follow into battle. But that result was second-half adjustments by excellent coordinators against the Gus Malzahn team, who has put performance after performance after performance against the upper echelon of the SEC West in recent years that have just not been good. And Auburn continues its really mysterious inability to win at LSU. They just cannot win there. Yeah, nutty, nutty score there. I I was so shocked to wake up and see that score. All right, Arkansas, hey, they managed nine points against Bama, who only scored 41, I guess. Yeah, Bama, that's a disappointment game for Bama. They scored in their first play of the game yet again with like a handoff and, uh, you know, snooze fest. Bama fans, I'm sorry for you. Your football season is really boring. If you want some more excitement and things to complain about in two-hour-long podcasts to break down all the bad decisions you make, come be a Gator fan. In somewhat hopeful news for the Gators, Missouri put up 28 points against the Vaughn and Georgia defense, but the game, not all that close. Mizzou 28, Georgia 53. I didn't see a single snap of this game, but I wanted to go back and watch it. And of course I will. Don't worry, because I'll watch all the Georgia games leading up to the Florida Georgia game, not this weekend, but next. So I saved the film. So I can't comment on what happened other than I'll be curious to see how Missouri generated their points. And was that sort of just blown coverages by Georgia? Was it something Missouri did schematically? That was a very surprising result to look up and see that score. I think it was like 35-21 at one point in time. It was odd. Very odd. Yeah, it was was close for a while. Um, Mississippi State pounds a really bad BYU team, 35-10. to I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, no, nothing there. BYU is uh, is is trending in the wrong direction for their history. They're they're very down. Even you know BYU is typically like really solid. They're consistent. They're a team you see on your schedule and think, hey, those guys can play. And this year, it's really not been the case. Okay, <laughs> we talk about Butch Jones maybe every week in his trip to the gallows. This might be the noose tightening around his neck. South Carolina fifteen, Tennessee nine. <laughs> All I can do is laugh. Like. The SEC is so bad, Alan. It's it's so bad, and we started calling it the SEC lease last year. 
it's just like matter of fact now that it's not even worth commenting on, but this game was a freaking train wreck. I mean, Tennessee's defense is not good. South Carolina has weird, unpredictable results. They beat NC State. They do other weird stuff. You kind of feel like they've got it back going again, and they're going to go beat Tennessee convincingly, and they don't. Tennessee has the ball on the five-yard line with a chance to win. They don't score. Uh, you know, Will Muschamp doesn't go for the touchdown. He goes for a field goal and plays defense. I mean, like, it's it's special. The SEC East is a special place to be a football coach in right now. And Butch Jones, why they haven't just fired him regardless of buyout and just do the merciful thing and let this guy go on and live his life somewhere else as a coordinator and just please get him out of the spotlight. I actually feel bad for him now that he has to keep every single week going in front of the national media and answering questions about some terrible loss. It's, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's frustrating times to be a Tennessee ball fan. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty great to the, hear whatever idiotic quote comes out of his mouth every week. Um, but I think they're going to let him, you know, run into the bus all that is Alabama next week um, just to save his replacement, that indignity. Vandy 35, Ole Miss 57. Vandy, that Derek Mason, Derek Mason defense apparently does not exist this year. And this is why you wait until you play quality competition to comment on how good a team is. And so Vanderbilt, when they were all jacked up and excited about how they had a top five defense in all these categories – they hadn't played anybody, and that has significantly changed. Old Miss, a team that is really like super schizo. They, I think they're actually probably doing better than I thought they were going to do with some of their results. Uh, just crushes them, and yet the SEC East rolls on in just a, a dumpster fire of, of sadness. Okay, James, it's essentially the midway point of the season. You have us headed into a bye week. So let's do a little bit of a, I don't know, halfway award season here. We'll talk about the Gators. We'll talk about some national stuff. And let's start with our highs and lows of the season. James, give me your high point for the Gator season at this point and your low point. Maybe to choose from probably for both. So when you asked me this, my first thought was my emotional high. And I'm going to go with that. And therefore, the emotional high for me was when we had a lead against Michigan in Jerry World. And our defense had just gone back-to-back pick sixes. That was as high as I got emotionally and excitement-wise. Pretty much every spot after that was like a slow death back down to the baseline of like numbness. So that was my personal high. I'm going to go with that. What about you? I think it's got to be the Tennessee win. I mean, just the magic of that throw. Even looking back, you know, it's beating a pretty bad Tennessee team. Anytime you can experience a moment like that, it's – really memorable and cool. And I don't want to take that for granted. All right, then my low, I assume, which is yes. next up on the docket. There are so many to choose from Alan. My low is just going to be the play calling. And all of you expected me to say that. I know I should pick a moment from a game, but I can't because if you're asking me emotionally, what my low is, it's the never ending frustration. I feel every single game watching us do stupid stuff that costs us games. And it's low. It's very low for me. And it's lower than any individual point in the game, any individual play, any bad thing we've done. That is the lowest low for me. And I think that's the only way I can truly answer this question because it should be emotional. And that is my lowest low. Yeah, it's got to come from the last two weeks for me. I've been going back and forth. And I'm going to say that fourth down, us not converting against LSU 
and losing to them there. Um, felt like we had that game won in a lot of ways and we couldn't put it away. And I think this week is just kind of repercussions of that week in some sense. Okay, let's talk about kind of the most pleasant surprise and the most bitter disappointment. What's the, what's the most pleasant surprise for you? The most pleasant surprise is a tie. Malik Davis is the obvious one, but that's too obvious. And I heard a lot in, in the the preseason about how he was really doing work in practice. And so it wasn't totally surprising given the reports I had heard. Our true freshman playing corner, that to me is not only surprising, it's amazing. And I want to keep highlighting that. The play of Henderson and both uh, Marco Wilson and him together that has been unreal. You just do not watch freshmen playing the kind of man defense they're playing at this level very often. So hats off to them. I'm going to give them my surprise, even though they're both good and we knew that. If you think back to opening day on the roster, uh, neither of those guys, I believe, Alan, were listed as starting corners. Neither of them. I believe it was Duke Dawson and uh, people speculated Chauncey Gardner, maybe Joseph Putu, but it was not, to my recollection, Marco Wilson. He was slotted as a nickelback. And I think Henderson may or may not have been in there. But either way, certainly not uh, what we've gotten based upon what we expect in the preseason out of those guys. Much, much better. Great surprise. Yeah, that is an excellent surprise. And, you know, it's nice because you hopefully have those guys for years to come. I'm going to say Kadarius Tony, And, you know, we saw we he flashed in the spring. Guy with, you know, a lot of kind of buzz around him. But often those guys you know, fade into the background. You don't actually see them on the field. The coaches can't figure out how to get them up to speed enough to get them in the game. But he's amazing every time he touches the ball. It really hurt not having him this week. So I'll say Kadarius Tony. What about your disappointment? Disappointment's got to be all the guys that got suspended for me. Uh, Scarlett, Callaway, those guys, they let their team down. I'm really frankly surprised that they're not kicked off the team by now. I know the state could drop the charges. I understand the legal ramifications of this. I have a lot of friends who are lawyers. I've talked to them about this stuff. It doesn't matter. These guys did this stuff on purpose. Callaway's done multiple stuff before. Just really disappointing to me that this is going on. It hurts the team. It's very frustrating, and that's just the biggest disappointment. There's been other guys that have done things that have been frustrating, but that's just a massive letdown. Agreed, and I was going to pick that as well. It It's really brutal. If I had to go something else, I would say maybe the development of Felipe Franks. I was hoping that the coaches would be able to get him utilizing his cannon of an arm um, a little bit more than we have, so that's that's tough. Let's move over to our team MVP. could be a lot of guys, really. But I'm going to go with someone you mentioned and say Malik Davis. Um, you know, Not that he's such a surprise because he's a guy who you know, came in with some decent status. But, man, he's been really incredible to watch. And we've really leaned on him to win the games that we've won. Yeah, I'm with you there, Malik Davis. I think if you look at one guy that's carried us to victories, maybe on his own, it'd be him. He, he's been the most valuable guy. Uh, P. Ryan is nice. He he does nice things. But P. Ryan's play has been enhanced because of what Malik does to defenses. And Malik is a, is just a is a special talent right now. And he's, he's absolutely my midpoint MVP. 
Okay, let's talk about some stuff on the national scene. What? Who's been your favorite team to watch nationally? I like being totally unapologetic about this, but I love watching West Virginia. It, it's it's I am not even hiding it. It's fantastic. I love watching Will Greer play. Uh, there's a lot of fun teams to watch this year, for the record. But I, I have I'm hard pressed to find one more exciting than West Virginia, and it just so happens they've played a lot of really fun games, uh, very close, well fought games, and uh, I've enjoyed that week in and week out. I know when West Virginia is playing every single week, so by that measure alone, that's the that's the pick for me. Who do you got? I'm going to say Oklahoma, and maybe that's because I've got some friends who are Oklahoma fans out here in Moscow, so I've maybe been a little more in tune with them or watched a little bit more than I normally would have. But that Ohio State game was incredible. I love watching Baker Mayfield. Even their loss was kind of interesting because it was so out of nowhere to such a huge underdog. Uh, So I'm going to say Oklahoma. All right. Those are our favorite teams. Give me your halfway Heisman. Who, If you had to vote today and you had a Heisman vote, who would you give it to? 100% hands down Saquon Barkley of Penn State. I think at this point in time, unless Penn State struggles and falls off the map, even if they finish with two losses, he's going to be the guy. Uh, he is a next-level talent. The guy is just phenomenal what he can do each and every Saturday. And he is, he is I think, the most valuable player in college football. Uh, so that that's my pick. Yeah, he's incredible. I love watching him play, actually. Bryce Love is the guy. I don't I don't really know. I've only seen the highlights from him. He's averaging 10 yards a carry. That is unreal. It's almost unfathomable. But if I had to give it to somebody, I would have to say Baker. Um, and just for what he means to that team and and how he holds them together. Um you know, they have a loss on their record at home, so that's dings him for sure. Uh, but, you know, a lot of seasons still have to play, and if I had to pick, I think I would choose him. All right, James, we did our playoff picks before the season. Well, I guess maybe after the first week of the season. And, uh, you know, I think we might change them a little bit, considering what we know now. Um, give me your new playoff picks well i'll give you my old ones first i had usc penn state alabama oklahoma and i'm not going to change them i'm going to stick with those four and i I, there's a lot of season left if oklahoma wins out i think they'll absolutely be in the playoff if usc wins out i think they'll be in the playoff Uh, i think that's the way the schedules fall i think penn state is definitely the, the best team in the big 10 and I think Alabama is obviously the best team in the SEC. And so I'm going to stick with those picks. I mean, I, I don't love USC. I think they're really questionable. I think the Pac-12 is really questionable. I'm not sure the Pac-12 is going to get somebody in there. Uh, it would be easy to swap USC for Clemson. That would be the obvious swap, but Clemson has now lost their starting quarterback. So I don't think the ACC is going to have anyone come out of there. I don't believe in Miami. It's hard to find a pick. You can throw in TCU. You can throw in a few other guys. But I'm going to stick with these guys. And I'm probably going to have only one of them in the playoff, which will be Alabama. But it'll be fun to watch it disintegrate. Who do you got? Of course, Alabama, the obvious choice. Can't not have them in there. I like Penn State out of the Big Ten. I mean, Ohio State's playing a little bit better right now, although against some inferior competition. But I think Penn State's going to come out of that little grouping of Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State. Uh 
I'm going to stick with Clemson. I don't think I had them in my original four, but I think they've gotten the brunt of their ACC schedule out of the way, and I think they figured it out on offense, and that defense is still nasty. And I'm going to put Georgia in as my fourth team. I think, you know, they're going to make it to the – I believe they're going to make it to the SEC title game undefeated in a 12-1 Georgia team or – excuse me, 11-1 Georgia team will be really hard to keep out considering who they'll have played throughout the year. Now, that took a hit with Auburn losing, but I think Auburn's still going to be a nice win on their on their ledger. So maybe for the first time we'll see the SEC with two teams in the playoff. Yeah, Georgia, that's an interesting pick. That's that's the that's just one that ugh, if that happens is some of all my fears because not only is the 3-year rule heavily in play with Kirby Smart, it's in play at the highest level. He's already he's already following it perfectly with regards to this season, if he does not make the playoffs. But if he does make the playoffs, then you're talking about a guy that's, as far as stats can tell you, is going to be an elite yeah. level coach. And that is really bad news for us as Florida fans. So maybe my hope that the, the, the fairy dust will fall off this season for them and they'll return to a still great trajectory, but somewhat lower level of ceiling would be nice. But you're right. I mean, they're going to be favored in, in all the remaining games for the most part except for that Bama one. And so if they just take care of business from here on out, uh, they are going to be very hard to keep out, especially because I think it's very likely teams like Oklahoma and USC fall away, given what they've been doing on a week-to-week basis. All right, Alan, let's look at this week's slate of national games. Not a bunch of compelling games this weekend. There are two that highlight the docket. We picked out five for you. Oklahoma State versus Texas. Oklahoma State is still in the national championship hunt. Uh, Dark horse sort of dinged. You know, I don't think people are thinking they have a real shot, but mathematically they're alive and they're taking on a, a Texas team, obviously, that uh, has been feisty. Oklahoma State favored by seven and a half on the road. What do you like here? This is a really fun game. I think there's going to be a lot of points scored. I'm going to take Texas in the points. I think it stays pretty close, although I could see Oklahoma State just putting the pedal to the metal and, and leaving them in the dust a little bit. But I don't know. I like the way Texas is playing right now. Uh, so I'm going to take Texas in the points. Texas has had a great schedule. Like what a fun schedule they've had playing against top programs all the time. Good games. I think Texas has a lot of experience in this one. And I think Oklahoma state does not given the schedule and who they've played. And I, I think Texas is, is going to slide within the points, but I, I like them to outright win this game at home. I think they're, they've been knocking on the door. This is, this feels like it's going to be a Tom Herman signature win. Uh, Syracuse against Miami. Syracuse fresh off an emotional high win. Typically, teams like this struggle in their next game, and Vegas is showing you that as their as Miami is favored by fourteen and a half in this game. So Miami at home, Syracuse on the road, fourteen and a half point favorites. And Miami's been squeaking games out against everyone. Uh, interesting right. line here. Here, yeah, very interesting line, Alan. What do you got here? I don't know. It's hard to take Miami and be with that many points over almost anybody who's any good. So does Syracuse ride the momentum, or like you said, do they have an emotional letdown here? I can't in good conscience take this many points with Miami, so I'm forced to take Syracuse. Yeah, I feel the same way. I like Syracuse not to win, but I feel like they get inside those points. All right, UCF versus Navy. UCF undefeated, Navy one loss. This is probably the first true test, if you will, of UCF this season. Uh, UCF favored by eight. You like UCF here, or you like Navy? I'm going to go with UCF here. I think they keep it rolling. Uh, I don't know 
how they're going to fare against Navy's style of offense. I don't know if their defense can really hold up to that kooky kind of triple auctions kind of stuff, but they put up so many points. I don't think the Navy's going to be able to keep pace. That's what it feels like. But then again, this feels like a game Navy wins to me. This feels like a game that Navy controls the clock. They they sort of vice grip you with that triple option. They frustrate the sexy team that scores a lot of points. It, this is going to be another Hallmark game for me. I said earlier, TCU West Virginia was one. Oddly enough, I think this UCF Navy game is an important game for me to evaluate Scott Frost. I think all the signals are that Scott Frost has been getting it done. I don't know what to think about this. I've got a feeling that Navy's going to be within that eight and maybe pull off the upset. And my other feeling is that UCF blows the doors off of them. So I'm conflicted. I'm truly conflicted. I don't know what to do. And because of that, I'm going to take I'm going to take what's known, which is that Navy plays a closer game and they fall inside that point scared. Uh, Michigan on the road against Penn State. Penn State favored by nine and a half points. I don't think anybody would have thought before the season there'd have been a 10 point spread on this one even as good as a lot of people thought Penn State would be. Yeah, this looks like such an interesting game, especially with that point spread. Penn State, I've got them in the playoffs, so I think they're going to win this game, obviously. So the question is just, is this close or not? And the way that Michigan has been struggling on offense, man, I think I'm just have to go with Penn State and the and like, you know, to cover here. Yeah, I like Penn State in this one. Michigan, uh, you know, on the road against Indiana last week in overtime, uh, squeaking out a win. And were they at home actually, Alan? I can't remember now if they were on at home or on the road. But either way, squeaking out that OT win, and you know, minus minus Spate, who's a much better quarterback than O'Corn. Uh, I like Penn State here. I think the crowd's going to be just yammed for this thing, uh, and I think this is going to be sort of a James Franklin signature win. All right, USC versus Notre Dame. This is the game I'm most looking forward to. I love the pageantry and the history of this rivalry. USC has played a ton of thrilling games this year. The Notre Dame-Georgia game was an absolute thriller of a game we talked about in this very podcast. Notre Dame favored by three and a half. This is just why you love to be a college football fan. This kind of game for me, Alan. I love it. I'm excited about it. Who do you have in this one? I'm going to take USC only because it's three and a half. If it was anything less than that, I would have taken Notre Dame. Notre Dame is really intriguing with me. They have a real shot to make the playoffs. I mean, if they're coming in at one loss and that one loss is to a Georgia team that could beat Alabama or something like that, they have a chance to sneak in. I don't know that they will, but at least that's still on the table. But this game feels like it's going to be really close. USC seems to play everything close, so I'm going to take the points here with USC. I like Notre Dame in this one. I think that Brian Kelly is is getting back to his normal self. He sort of had a little hiatus from that. This is a team a lot of people liked in the preseason. Uh, a popular candidate to long if you're if you're in a long short pool. They were starting the season unranked. Uh, obviously, Georgia has been a juggernaut. And Notre Dame is really the only team that was there with them. And you could argue Notre Dame should have won that game. Uh, so I think that what they've put on paper, results-wise, is better than what USC has done. And they're at home. And I think they're going to be jacked up. It's going to be you know, a couple of years since they've had a game of this nature. And uh, I look forward to seeing what the result is. But I like Notre Dame. Well, certainly a couple marquee matchups there. I'm fascinated to see how that plays out. Well, that brings us to a close. Thanks for listening, as always. Appreciate you guys so much. 
Enjoy the bye week. Enjoy some other football. Uh, and hopefully we'll see you back here next week when we get ready for UGA. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn, ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn, tell people to stay off the lawn, compare it to your neighbor's lawn, and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com